What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 40 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 40 The Breakfast and what sort of persons do you expect to breakfast said beauchamp a gentleman and a diplomatist then we shall have to wait two hours for the gentleman and three for the diplomatist i shall come back to dessert keep me some strawberries coffee and cigars i shall take a cutlet on my way to the chamber do not do anything of the sort for were the gentleman a montmorency and the diplomatist a metanique we will breakfast at eleven in the meantime "'Follow Debray's example and take a glass of sherry and a biscuit. "'Be it so, I, sh I will stay. I must do something to distract my thoughts. "'You are like Debray, and yet it seems to me that uh, when the minister is out of spirits, "'the opposition ought to be joyous. "'Ah, you do not know with what I am threatened. "'I shall hear this morning that Monsieur Donglars made a speech at the Chamber of Deputies, "'and at his wife's this evening I shall hear the tragedy of a peer of France.' the devil take the constitutional government and since we had our choice as they say at least how could we choose that i understand you must lay in a stock of hilarity do not run down monsieur danglars speeches said debray he votes for you for he belongs to the opposition pardieu that is exactly the worst of all i am waiting until you send him to speak at the luxembourg to laugh at my ease my dear friend said albert to beauchamp it is plain that the affairs of spain are settled for you are most desperately out of humour this morning recollect uh, that parisian gossip has spoken of a marriage between myself and mademoiselle jeanne danglars i cannot in conscience therefore let you run down the speeches of a man who will one day say to me vicomte you know i give my daughter two millions ah this marriage will never take place said beauchamp the king has made him a baron and can make him a peer but he cannot make him a gentleman and the count of morcerf is too aristocratic to consent for the paltry sum of two million francs to a mesalliance the viscount of morcerf can only wed a marchioness but two million francs make a nice little sum replied morcerf it is the social capital of a theatre on the boulevard or a railroad from the jardin des plantes de la rapée never mind what he says morcerf said debray do you marry her you marry a money-bag label it is true well but what does it matter it is better to have a blazon less and a figure more on it you have seven martlets on your arms give three to your wife and you will still have four that is one more than monsieur de guise had who so nearly became the king of france and whose cousin was emperor of germany on my word i think you are right lucien said albert absently to be sure besides every millionaire is as noble as a bastard that is he can be do not say that debray returned beauchamp laughing for here is chateau renaud who to cure you of your mania for paradoxes will pass the award of renaud de montauban his ancestor through your body he will sully it then returned lucien for i am low very low 
"'Oh, heavens!' cried Beauchamp. "'The minister quotes Béranger. What shall we come to next?' "'Monsieur de Chateau Renaud, Monsieur Maximilien Morel,' said the servant, announcing two fresh guests. "'Now then, to breakfast,' said Beauchamp. "'For if I remember, you told me you only expected two persons, Albert.' Morel, muttered Albert. Morel, who is he? But before he had finished, Monsieur de Chateau Renaud, a handsome young man of thirty, gentleman all over, that is, with the figure of a guiche and the wit of a Montmartre, took Albert's hand. My dear Albert, said he, let me introduce you to Monsieur Maximilien Morel, captain of Safi, my friend, and what is more, however, the man speaks for himself my preserver a salute my hero viscount and he stepped on one side to give place to a young man of refined and dignified bearing with large and open brow piercing eyes and black moustache whom our readers have already seen at marseilles under circumstances sufficiently dramatic not to be forgotten a rich uniform half french half oriental set off his graceful and stalwart figure and his broad chest was decorated with the order of the legion of honor the young officer bowed with easy and elegant politeness monsieur said albert with affectionate courtesy the count of chateau renaud knew how much pleasure this introduction would give me you are his friend be ours also well said interrupted chateau renaud and pray that if you should ever be in a similar predicament he may do as much for you as he did for me what has he done asked albert oh nothing worth speaking of said morel monsieur de chateau renaud exaggerates not worth speaking of cried chateau renaud life is not worth speaking of that is rather too philosophical on my word morel it is very well for you who risk your life every day but for me who only did so once we gather from all this baron that captain morel saved your life exactly so on what occasion asked beauchamp beauchamp my good fellow you know i am starving said debray do not set him off on some long story well i do not prevent your sitting down to table replied beauchamp chateau renaud can tell us while we eat our breakfast gentlemen said morcerf it is only a quarter past ten and i expect someone else ah true a diplomatist observed debray diplomat or not i don't know i only know that he charged himself on my account with a mission which he terminated so entirely to my satisfaction that had i been king i should have instantly created him knight of all my orders even had i been able to offer him the golden fleece and the garter well since we are not to sit down to table said debray take a glass of sherry and tell us all about it you all know that i had the fancy of going to africa it is a road your ancestors have traced for you said albert gallantly yes but i doubt that your object was like theirs to rescue the holy sepulchre you are quite right beauchamp observed the young aristocrat it was only to fight as an amateur i cannot bear duelling since two seconds whom i had chosen to arrange an affair forced me to break the arm of one of my best friends one whom you all know poor france d'epinay 
ah true said debray you did fight some time ago about what the devil take me if i remember returned chateau renaud but i recollect perfectly one thing that being unwilling to let such talents as mine sleep i wished to try upon the arabs the new pistols that had been given to me in consequence i embarked for oran and went from thence to constantine where i arrived just in time to witness the raising of the siege i retreated with the rest for eight and forty hours i endured the rain during the day and the cold during the night tolerably well and the third morning my horse died of cold poor brute accustomed to be covered up and to have stove in the stable the arabian finds himself unable to bear ten degrees of cold in arabia that's why you want to purchase my english horse said debray you think he will bear the cold better you are mistaken for i have made a vow never to return to africa you were very much frightened then asked beauchamp well yes and i had good reason to be so replied chateau renaud i was retreating on foot for my horse was dead six arabs came up full gallop to cut off my head i shot two with my double barrel gun and two more with my pistols but i was then disarmed and two were still left one seized me by the hair that is why i now wear it so short for no one knows what may happen the other swung a yatagan and i already felt the cold steel on my neck when this gentleman whom you see here charged them shot the one who held me by the hair and cleft the skull of the other with his saber he had assigned himself the task of saving a man's life that day chance caused that man to be myself when i am rich i will order a statue of chance from clagman or marocchetti yes said morel smiling it was the fifth of september the anniversary of the day on which my father was miraculously preserved therefore as far as it lies in my power i endeavour to celebrate it by some heroic action interrupted chateau renaud i was chosen but that is not all after rescuing me from the sword he rescued me from the cold not by sharing his cloak with me like saint martin but by giving me the whole then from hunger by sharing with me guess what a strasbourg pie asked beauchamp no his horse of which we each of us ate a slice with a hearty appetite it was very hard the horse said morcerf laughing no the sacrifice returned chateau renaud ask debray if he would sacrifice his english steed for a stranger not for a stranger said debray but for a friend i might perhaps i divined that you would become mine count replied morel besides as i had the honour to tell you heroism or not sacrifice or not that day i owed an offering to bad fortune in recompense for the favours good fortune had on other days granted to us the history to which monsieur morel alludes continued chateau renaud is an admirable one which he will tell you some day when you are better acquainted with him to-day let us fill our stomachs and not our memories what time do you breakfast albert at half-past ten precisely asked debray taking out his watch oh you will give me five minutes grace replied morcerf for i also expect a preserver of whom of myself 
cried Morcerf. Parbleu, do you think I cannot be saved as well as anyone else, and that there are only Arabs who cut off heads? Our breakfast is a philanthropic one, and we shall have at table, at least, I hope, so two benefactors of humanity. What shall we do? said Debray. We have only one Montheon prize. Well, it will be given to someone who has done nothing to deserve it, said Beauchamp. That is the way the Academy mostly escapes from the dilemma. And where does he come from? asked Debray. You have already answered the question once, but so vaguely that I venture to put it a second time. Really, said Albert, I do not know. When I invited him three months ago, he was then at Rome, but since that time who knows where he may have gone. And you think him capable of being exact? demanded Debray. I think him capable of everything. Well, with the five minutes' grace, we have only ten left. I will profit by them to tell you something about my guest. I beg your pardon, interrupted Beauchamp. Are there any materials for an article in what you are going to tell us? Yes, and for a most curious one. Go on, then, for I see I shall not get to the chamber this morning, and I must make up for it. I was at Rome during the last carnival. We know that, said Beauchamp. Yes, but what you do not know is that I was carried off by bandits. There are no bandits, cried Debray. Yes, there are, and most hideous, or rather most admirable ones, for I found them ugly enough to frighten me. Come, my dear Albert, said Debray, confess that your cook is behind hand, that the oysters have not arrived from Ostend or Marraine, and that, like Madame de Montenon, you are going to replace the dish by a story. Say so at once. We are sufficiently well-bred to excuse you, and to listen to your history, fabulous as it promises to be. And I say to you, fabulous as it may seem, I tell it as a true one from the beginning to the end. The brigands had carried me off and conducted me to a gloomy spot called the Catacombs of San Sebastian. I know it, said Chateau Renaud. I narrowly escaped catching a fever there. And I did more than that, replied Morcerf, for I caught one. I was informed that I was prisoner until I paid the sum of four thousand Roman crowns, about twenty-four thousand francs. Unfortunately, I had not above fifteen hundred. I was at the end of my journey and of my credit. I wrote to France, and were he here he would confirm every word. I wrote then to France that if he did not come with the four thousand crowns before six, at ten minutes past I should have gone to join the blessed saints and glorious martyrs in whose company I had the honour of being, and Signor Luigi Vampa, such was the name of the chief of these bandits, would have scrupulously kept his word. But France did come with the four thousand crowns, said Chateau Renaud. A man whose name is France d'Epinay or Albert de Morcerf has not much difficulty in procuring them. No, he arrived accompanied simply by the guest I am going to present to you. Ah, this gentleman is a Hercules, killing Kaku, a Perseus freeing Andromeda. No, he is a man about my own size. Armed to the teeth. He had not even a knitting needle. But he paid your ransom. He said two words to the chief, 
and I was free. "'And they apologized to him for having carried you off?' said Beauchamp. "'Just so.' "'Why, he is a second Ariosto.' "'No, his name is the Count of Monte Cristo.' "'There is no Count of Monte Cristo,' said Debray. "'I do not think so.' added chateau renaud with the air of a man who knows the whole of the european nobility perfectly does anyone know of anything of a count of monte cristo he comes possibly from the holy land and one of his ancestors possessed calvary as the montmartre did the dead sea i think i can assist your researches said maximilian monte cristo is a little island i have often heard spoken of by the old sailors of my father employed a grain of sand in the centre of the mediterranean an atom in the infinite precisely cried albert well he of whom i speak is the lord and master of this grain of sand of this atom he has purchased the title of count somewhere in tuscany he is rich then i believe so but that ought to be visible that is what deceives you debray i do not understand you have you read the arabian nights what a question well do you know if the persons you see there are rich or poor if their sacks of wheat are not rubies or diamonds they seem like poor fishermen and suddenly they open some mysterious cavern filled with the wealth of the indies which means which means that my count of monte cristo is one of those fishermen he has even a name taken from the book since he calls himself sinbad the sailor and as a cave filled with gold and you have seen this cavern morcerf asked beauchamp no but france has for heaven's sake not a word of this before him france went in with his eyes blindfolded and was waited on by mutes and by women to whom cleopatra was a painted strumpet only he is not quite sure about the women for they did not come until after he had taken hashish so that what he took for women might have been simply a row of statues the two young men looked at morcerf as if to say are you mad or are you laughing at us and i also said morel thoughtfully have heard something like this from an old sailor named penelon ah cried albert it is very lucky that monsieur morel comes to aid me you are vexed are you not that he thus gives a clue to the labyrinth my dear albert said debray what you tell us is so extraordinary ah because your ambassadors and your consuls do not tell you of them they have no time they are too much taken up with interfering in the affairs of their countrymen who travel how you get angry and attack our poor agents how will you have them protect you the chamber cuts down their salaries every day so that now they have scarcely any will you be ambassador albert i will send you to constantinople no lest on the first demonstration i make in favour of mehmet ali the sultan send me the bowstring and makes my secretary strangle me you say very true responded debray yes said albert but this has nothing to do with the existence of the count of monte cristo pardieu everyone exists doubtless but not in the same way every one has not black slaves a princely retinue an arsenal of weapons that would do credit to an arabian fortress 
horses that cost six thousand francs apiece and greek mistresses have you seen the greek mistress i have both seen and heard her i saw her at the theatre and heard her one morning when i breakfasted with the count he eats then yes but so little it can hardly be called eating he must be a vampire laugh if you will the countess g who knew lord ruthven declared that the count was a vampire ah capital said beauchamp for a man not connected with newspapers here is the pendant to the famous sea serpent of the constitutionnel wild eyes the iris of which contracts or dilates at pleasure said debray facial angle strongly developed magnificent forehead livid complexion black beard sharp and white teeth politeness unexceptionable just so lucien returned morcerf you have described him feature for feature yes keen and cutting politeness this man has often made me shudder and one day that we were viewing an execution i thought i should faint more from hearing the cold and calm manner in which he spoke of every description of torture than from the sight of the executioner and the culprit did he not conduct you to the ruins of the Colosseum and suck your blood asked beauchamp or having delivered you make you sign a flaming parchment surrendering your soul to him as esau did his birthright rail on rail on at your ease gentlemen said morcerf somewhat piqued when i look at you parisian idler on the boulevard de grand or the bois de boulogne and think of this man it seems to me we are not of the same race i am highly flattered returned beauchamp at the same time added chateau renaud your count of monte cristo is a very fine fellow always accepting his little arrangements with the italian banditti there are no italian banditti said debray no vampire cried beauchamp no count of monte cristo added debray there is half past ten striking albert confess you have dreamed this and let us sit down to breakfast continued beauchamp but the sound of the clock had not died away when germain announced his excellency the count of monte cristo the involuntary start everyone gave proved how much morcerf's narrative had impressed them and albert himself could not wholly refrain from manifesting sudden emotion he had not heard a carriage stop in the street or steps in the antechamber the door had itself opened noiselessly the count appeared dressed with the greatest simplicity but the most fastidious dandy could have found nothing to cavil at in his toilet every article of dress hat coat gloves and boots was from the first makers he seemed scarcely five-and-thirty but what struck everybody was his extreme resemblance to the portrait de Bray had drawn the count advanced smiling into the centre of the room and approached albert who hastened towards him holding out his hand in a ceremonial manner punctuality said monte cristo is the politeness of kings according to one of your sovereigns i think but it is not the same with travellers however i hope you will excuse the two or three seconds i am behindhand five hundred leagues are not to be accomplished without some trouble and especially in france where it seems it is forbidden to beat the postilions 
"'My dear Count,' replied Albert, "'I was announcing your visit to some of my friends, whom I had invited in consequence of the promise you did me the honour to make, and whom I now present to you. They are the Count of Chateau Renaud, whose nobility goes back to the twelve peers, and whose ancestors had a place at the brown table. Monsieur Lucien de Bray, private secretary to the Minister of the Interior, Monsieur Beauchamp, an editor of a paper, and the terror of the French gouvernement, but of whom, in spite of his national celebrity, you perhaps have not heard in Italy, since his paper is prohibited there, and Monsieur Maximilien Morel, captain of Safille. At this name the Count, who had hitherto saluted every one with courtesy, but at the same time with coldness and formality, stepped a pace forward, and a slight tinge of red coloured his pale cheeks. "'You wear the uniform of the new French conquerors, monsieur,' said he. "'It is a handsome uniform.' No one could have said what caused the Count's voice to vibrate so deeply, and what made his eye flash, which was in general so clear, lustrous, and limpid when he pleased. "'You have never seen our Africans, Count?' said Albert. "'Never,' replied the Count, who was by this time perfectly master of himself again. "'Well, beneath this uniform beats one of the bravest and noblest arts in the whole army.' "'Oh, Monsieur de Morcerf,' interrupted Morel. "'Let me go on, Captain, and we have just heard,' continued Albert, "'of a new deed of his, and so heroic a one that, although I have seen him to-day for the first time, I request you to allow me to introduce him as my friend. At these words it was still possible to observe in Monte Cristo the concentrated look, changing colour, and slight trembling of the eyelid that show emotion. "'Ah, you have a noble heart,' said the Count. "'So much the better.' This exclamation, which corresponded to the Count's own thought rather than to what Albert was saying, surprised everybody, and especially Morel, who looked at Monte Cristo with wonder. But at the same time, the intonation was so soft that however strange the speech might seem, it was impossible to be offended at it. Why should he doubt it? said Beauchamp to Chateau Renaud. In reality, replied the latter, who with his aristocratic glance and his knowledge of the world had penetrated at once all that was penetrable in Monte Cristo. Albert has not deceived us for the count is a most singular being what say you morel ma foi he has an open look about him that pleases me in spite of the singular remark he has made about me gentlemen said albert germain informs me that breakfast is ready my dear count allow me to show you the way they passed silently into the breakfast room and every one took his place gentlemen said the count seating himself permit me to make a confession which must form my excuse for any improprieties i may commit i am a stranger and a stranger to such a degree that this is the first time i have ever been at paris the french way of living is utterly unknown to me and up to the present time i have followed the eastern customs which are entirely in contrast to the parisian i beg you therefore to excuse if you find anything in me too Turkish, too Italian, or too Arabian. Now then, let us breakfast. With what an air he says all this, muttered Beauchamp. 
decidedly he is a great man a great man in his own country added debray a great man in every country monsieur debray said chateau renaud the count was it may be remembered a most temperate guest albert remarked this expressing his fears lest at the outset the parisian mode of life should displease the traveller in the most essential point my dear count said he i fear one thing and that is that the fare of the rue du helder is not so much to your taste as that of the piazza di spagni i ought to have consulted you on the point and have had some dishes prepared expressly did you know me better returned the count smiling you would not give one thought of such a thing for a traveller like myself who has successfully lived on macaroni at naples polenta at milan olla podrida at valencia pilau at constantinople carrick in india and swallows nests in china i eat everywhere and of everything only i eat but little and to-day that you reproach me with my want of appetite is my day of appetite for i have not eaten since yesterday morning what cried all the guests you have not eaten for four-and-twenty hours no replied the count i was forced to go out of my road to obtain some information near nimes so that i was somewhat late and therefore i did not choose to stop and you ate in your carriage asked morcerf no i slept as i generally do when i am weary without having the courage to amuse myself or when i am hungry without feeling inclined to eat but you can sleep when you please monsieur said morel yes you have a recipe for it an infallible one that would be invaluable to us in africa who have not always any food to eat and rarely anything to drink yes said monte cristo but unfortunately a recipe excellent for a man like myself would be very dangerous applied to an army which might not awake when it was needed may we inquire what is this recipe asked debray oh yes returned monte cristo i make no secret of it it is a mixture of excellent opium which i fetched myself from canton in order to have it pure and the best hashish which grows in the east that is between the tigris and the euphrates these two ingredients are mixed in equal proportions and formed into pills ten minutes after one is taken the effect is produced asked baron franz d'epinay i think he tasted them one day yes replied morcerf he said something about it to me but said beauchamp who as became a journalist was very incredulous you always carries this drug about you always would it be an indiscretion to ask to see these precious pills continued beauchamp hoping to take him at a disadvantage no monsieur returned the count and he drew from his pocket a marvellous casket formed out of a single emerald and closed by a golden lid which unscrewed and gave passage to a small greenish coloured pellet about the size of a pea this ball had an acrid and penetrating odour there were four or five more in the emerald which would contain about a dozen the casket passed around the table but it was more to examine the admirable emerald than to see the pills that it passed from hand to hand and is it your cook who prepares these pills asked beauchamp oh no monsieur replied monte cristo i do not thus betray my enjoyments to the vulgar i am a tolerable chemist and prepare my pills myself 
this is a magnificent emerald and the largest i have ever seen said chateau renaud although my mother has some remarkable family jewels i had three similar ones returned monte cristo i gave one to the sultan who mounted it in his saber another to our holy father the pope who had it set in his tiara opposite to one nearly as large though not so fine given by the emperor napoleon to his predecessor pius seventh i kept the third for myself and i had it hollowed out which reduced its value but rendered it more commodious for the purpose i intended everyone looked at monte cristo with astonishment he spoke with so much simplicity that it was evident he spoke the truth or that he was mad however the sight of the emerald made them naturally inclined to the former belief and what did these two uh, sovereigns give you in exchange for these magnificent presents asked debray the sultan the liberty of a woman replied the count the pope the life of a man so that once in my life i have been as powerful as if heaven had brought me into the world on the steps of a throne and it was peppino you saved was it not cried morcerf it was for him that you obtained pardon perhaps returned the count smiling my dear count you have no idea what pleasure it gives me to hear you speak thus said morcerf i had announced you beforehand to my friends as an enchanter of the arabian nights a wizard of the middle ages but the parisians are so subtle in paradox that they mistake for caprice of the imagination the most incontestable truths when these truths do not form a part of their daily existence for example here is debray who reads and beauchamp who prints every day a member of the jockey club has been stopped and robbed on the boulevard four persons have been assassinated in the rue saint denis or the faubourg saint germain ten fifteen or twenty thieves have been arrested in a cafe on the boulevard du temple or in the therme de julien and yet these same men deny the existence of the bandits in the maremma the campagna di romana or the pontine marshes tell him yourself and i was taken by bandits and that without your generous intercession i should now have been sleeping in the catacombs of saint sebastian instead of receiving them in my humble abode in the rue du helder ah said monte cristo you promised me never to mention that circumstance it was not i who made that promise cried morcerf it must have been someone else whom you have rescued in the same manner and whom you have forgotten pray speak of it for i shall not only i trust relate the little i do know but also a great deal i do not know it seems to me returned the count smiling that you played a sufficiently important part to know as well as myself what happened well you promise me if i tell all i know to relate in your turn all that i do not know that is but fair replied monte cristo well said morcerf for three days i believed myself the object of the attentions of a mask whom i took for a descendant of tulia or popea while i was simply the object of the attentions of a contadina and i say contadina to avoid saying peasant girl what i know is that like a fool a greater fool than he of whom i spoke just now i mistook this for a peasant girl a young bandit of fifteen or sixteen with beardless chin and slim waist and who just as i was about to imprint a chaste salute on his lips placed a pistol to my head 
and aided by seven or eight others led or rather dragged me to the catacombs of san sebastian where i found a highly educated brigand chief perusing caesar's commentaries and who deigned to leave off reading to inform me that unless the next morning before six o'clock four thousand piastres were paid into his account at his bankers at a quarter past six i should have ceased to exist the letter is still to be seen for it is in france d'epinay's possession signed by me and with a postscript of monsieur luigi vampa this is all i know but i know not count how you contrive to inspire so much respect in the bandits of rome who ordinarily have so little respect for anything i assure you france and i were lost in admiration nothing more simple returned the count i had known the famous vampa for more than ten years when he was quite a child and only a shepherd i gave him a few gold pieces for showing me my way and he in order to repay me gave me a poniard the hilt of which he had carved with his own hand and which you may have seen in my collection of arms in after years whether he had forgotten this interchange of presents which ought to have cemented our friendship or whether he did not recollect me he sought to take me but on the contrary it was i who captured him and a dozen of his band i might have handed him over to roman justice which is somewhat expeditious and which would have been particularly so with him but i did nothing of the sort i suffered him and his band to depart with the condition that they should sin no more said beauchamp laughing i see they kept their promise no monsieur returned monte cristo upon the simple condition that they should respect myself and my friends perhaps what i am about to say may seem strange to you who are socialists and vaunt humanity and your duty to your neighbour but i never seek to protect a society which does not protect me and which i will even say generally occupies itself about me only to injure me and thus by giving them a low place in my esteem and preserving a neutrality towards them it is society and my neighbour who are indebted to me bravo cried chateau renaud you are the first man i have ever met sufficiently courageous to preach egotism bravo count bravo it is frank at least said morel but i am sure that the count does not regret having once deviated from the principles he has so boldly avowed how have i deviated from those principles monsieur asked monte cristo who could not help looking at morel with so much intensity that two or three times the young man had been unable to sustain that clear and piercing glance why it seems to me replied morel that in delivering monsieur de morcerf whom you did not know you did good to your neighbour and to society of which he is the brightest ornament said beauchamp drinking off a glass of champagne my dear count cried morcerf you are at fault you one of the most formidable logicians i know and you must see it clearly proved that instead of being an egotist you are a philanthropist ah you call yourself oriental a levantine maltese indian chinese your family name is monte cristo sinbad the sailor is your baptismal appellation and yet the first day you set foot in paris you instinctively display the greatest virtue or rather the chief defect of us eccentric parisian that is you assume the views you have not 
and conceal the virtues you possess my dear vicomte returned monte cristo i do not see in all i have done anything that merits either from you or these gentlemen the pretended eulogies i have received you were no stranger to me for i knew you from the time i gave up two rooms to you invited you to breakfast with me lent you one of my carriages witnessed the carnival in your company and saw with you from a window in the piazza del popolo the execution that affected you so much that you nearly fainted i will appeal to any of these gentlemen could i leave my guest in the hands of a hideous bandit as you term him besides you know i had the idea that you would introduce me into some of the paris salons when i came to france you might some time ago have looked upon this resolution as a vague project but to-day you see it was a reality and you must submit to it under penalty of breaking your word i will keep it returned morcerf but i fear that you will be much disappointed accustomed as you are to picturesque events and fantastic horizons amongst us you will not meet with any of these episodes with which your adventurous existence has so familiarized you our chimborazo is montmartre our himalaya is mount valerian our great desert is the plain of grenelle where they are now boring an artesian well to water the caravans we have plenty of thieves though not so many as is said but these thieves stand in far more dread of a policeman than a lord france is so prosaic and paris so civilized a city that you will not find in its eighty-five department i say eighty-five because i do not include corsica you will not find then in these eighty-five departments a single hill on which there is not a telegraph or a grotto in which the commissary of police has not put up a gas lamp there is but one service i can render you and for that i place myself entirely at your orders that is to present or make my friends present you everywhere besides you have no need of any one to introduce you with your name and your fortune and your talent monte cristo bowed with a somewhat ironical smile you can present yourself everywhere and be well received i can be useful in one way only if knowledge of parisian habits of the means of rendering yourself comfortable or of the bazaars can assist you may depend upon me to find you a fitting dwelling here i do not dare offer to share my apartments with you as i shared yours at rome i who do not profess egotism but am yet egotist par excellence for except myself these rooms would not hold a shadow more unless that shadow were uh, feminine ah said the count that is a most conjugal reservation i recollect that at rome you said something of a projected marriage may i congratulate you the affair is still in projection and he who says in projection means already decided said debray no replied morcerf my father is most anxious about it and i hope he long to introduce you if not to my wife at least to my betrothed mademoiselle eugenie Donglars eugenie danglars said monte cristo tell me is not her father baron danglars yes returned morcerf a baron of a new creation what matter said monte cristo if he has rendered the state services which merit his distinction enormous ones answered beauchamp 
although in reality a liberal, he negotiated a loan of six millions for Charles X in 1829, who made him a baron and chevalier of the Legion of Honour, so that he wears the ribbon, not, as you would think, in his waistcoat pocket, but at his buttonhole. Ah, interrupted Morcerf, laughing, Beauchamp, Beauchamp, keep that for the corsair or the chiaravari, but spare my future father-in-law before me. Then turning to Monte Cristo, you just now spoke his name as if you knew the baron. I do not know him, returned Monte Cristo, but I shall probably soon make his acquaintance, for I have a credit open with him by the house of Richard and Blount of London, Arstein and Eskels of Vienna, and Thompson and French at Rome. As he pronounced the two last names, the Count glanced at Maximilian Morel. If the stranger expected to produce an effect on Morel, he was not mistaken. Maximilian started as if he had been electrified. "'Thompson and French?' said he. "'Do you know this house, monsieur?' "'They are my bankers in the capital of the Christian world,' returned the Count quietly. "'Can my influence with them be of any service to you?' "'Oh, Count, you could assist me perhaps in researches which have been up to the present fruitless. This house, in past years, did ours a great service, and has, I know not for what reason, always denied having rendered us this service.' "'I shall be at your orders,' said Monte Cristo, bowing. "'But,' continued Morcerf, "'a propos of Danglars, we have strangely wandered from the subject.' We were speaking of a suitable habitation for the Count of Monte Cristo. Come, gentlemen, let us all propose some place. Where shall we lodge this new guest in our great capital? Faubourg Saint-Germain, said Chateau Renaud. The Count will find them a charming hotel with a court and a garden. Bah, Chateau Renaud, returned Debray. You only know your dull and gloomy Faubourg Saint-Germain. Do not pay any attention to him, Count. Live in the Chaussée d'Antin. That's the real centre of Paris. Boulevard de l'Opéra, said Beauchamp. The second floor, a house with a balcony. The Count will have his cushions of silver cloth brought there, and as he smokes his jibouk, see all Paris pass before him. You have no idea, then, Morel, asked Chateau Renaud. You do not propose anything? Oh, yes, returned the young man, smiling. "'On the contrary, I have one. "'But I expected the Count would be tempted "'by one of the brilliant proposals made him, "'yet as he has not replied to any of them, "'I will venture to offer him a suite of apartments "'in a charming hotel in the Pompadour style "'that my sister has inhabited for a year in the Rue Meslay.' "'You have a sister?' asked the Count. "'Yes, monsieur, a most excellent sister. "'Married? Nearly nine years. "'Happy?' asked the Count again. "'As happy as it is permitted to a human creature to be,' replied Maximilian. "'She married the man she loved, who remained faithful to us in our fallen fortunes, Emmanuel Herbeau.' Monte Cristo smiled imperceptibly. "'I live there during my leave of absence,' continued Maximilian, "'and I shall be together with my brother-in-law, Emmanuel, at the disposition of the Count, whenever he thinks fit to honour us.' "'One minute!' cried Albert, without giving Monte Cristo the time to reply. "'Take care. You are going to immure a traveller, Simbad the Sailor, a man who comes to see Paris. You are going to make a patriarch of him.' "'Oh, no,' said Marel. "'My sister is five-and-twenty. 
my brother-in-law is thirty they are gay young and happy besides the count will be in his own house and only see them when he thinks fit to do so thanks monsieur said monte cristo i shall content myself with being presented to your sister and her husband if you will do me the honour to introduce me but i cannot accept the offer of any of one of these gentlemen since my habitation is already prepared what cried morcerf you are then going to an hotel that will be very dull for you was i so badly lodged at rome said monte cristo smiling parbleu at rome you spent fifty thousand piastres in furnishing your apartments but i presume that you are not disposed to spend a similar sum every day it is not that which deterred me replied monte cristo but as i determined to have a house to myself i sent on my valet de chambre and he ought by this time to have bought the house and furnished it but you have then a valet de chambre who knows paris said beauchamp it is the first time he has ever been in paris he is black and cannot speak returned monte cristo it is ali cried albert in the midst of the general surprise yes ali himself my nubian mute whom you saw i think at rome certainly said morcerf i recollect him perfectly but how could you charge a nubian to purchase a house and a mute to furnish it he would do everything wrong undeceiver yourself monsieur replied monte cristo i am quite sure that on the contrary he will choose everything as i wish he knows my tastes my caprice my wants he has been here a week with the instinct of a hound hunting by himself he will arrange everything for me he knew that i should arrive to-day at ten o'clock he was waiting for me at nine at the barriere de fontainebleau he gave me this paper it contains the number of my new abode read it yourself and monte cristo passed a paper to albert ah that is really original said beauchamp and very princely added chateau renaud what do you not know your house asked debray no said monte cristo i told you i do not wish to be behind my time i dressed myself in the carriage and descended at the viscount's door the young men looked at each other they did not know if it was a comedy monte cristo was playing but every word he uttered had such an air of simplicity that it was impossible to suppose what he said was false besides why should he tell a falsehood we must content ourselves then said beauchamp with rendering the count all the little service in our power i in my quality of journalist open all the theatres to him thanks monsieur returned monte cristo my steward has orders to take a box at each theatre is your steward also a nubian asked debray no he is a countryman of yours if a corsican is a countryman of anyone's but you know him monsieur de Montcerf. is it that excellent monsieur bertuccio who understands hiring windows so well yes you saw him the day i had the honour of receiving you he has been a soldier a smuggler in fact everything i would not be quite sure that he has not been mixed up with the police for some trifle a stab with a knife for instance and you have chosen this honest citizen for your steward said debray of how much does he rob you every year on my word replied the count not more than another 
i am sure he answers my purpose knows no impossibility and so i keep him then continued chateau renaud since you have an establishment a steward and a hotel in the champs elysees you only want a mistress albert smiled he thought of the fair greek he had seen in the count's box at the argentina and valle theatres i have something better than that said monte cristo i have a slave you procure your mistresses from the opera the vaudeville or the variety i purchased mine at constantinople it cost me more but i have nothing to fear don't you forget replied debray laughing that we are francs by name and francs by nature as king charles said and that the moment she puts her boot in france your slave becomes free who will tell her the first person who sees her she only speaks romaic that is different but at least we shall see her said beauchamp or do you keep eunuchs as well as mutes oh no replied monte cristo i do not carry brutalism so far every one who surrounds me is free to quit me and when they leave me will no longer have any need of me or anyone else it is for that reason perhaps that they do not quit me they have long since passed to dessert and cigars my dear albert said debray rising it is half past two your guest is charming but you leave the best company to go into the worst sometimes i must return to the ministers i will tell him of the count and we shall soon know of who he is take care returned albert no one has been able to accomplish that oh we have three millions for our police it is true they are almost always spent beforehand but no matter we shall still have fifty thousand francs to spend for this purpose and when you know will you tell me i promise you au revoir albert gentlemen good morning as he left the room debray called out loudly my carriage bravo said beauchamp to albert i shall not go to the chamber but i have something better to offer my readers than a speech of monsieur danglars for heaven's sake beauchamp returned morcerf do not deprive me of the merit of introducing him everywhere is he not peculiar he is more than that replied chateau renaud he is one of the most extraordinary men i ever saw in my life are you coming morel directly i have given my card to the count who has promised to pay us a visit at rue melee numero quatorze be sure i shall not fail to do so returned the count bowing and maximilian morel left the room with the baron de chateau renaud leaving monte cristo alone with morcerf end of chapter forty chapter forty one of the count of monte cristo by alexandre dumas this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter forty one the presentation when albert found himself alone with monte cristo my dear count said he allow me to commence my services as cicerone by showing you a specimen of a bachelor's apartment you who are accustomed to the palaces of italy can amuse yourself by calculating in how many square feet a young man who is not the worst lodged in paris can live as we pass from one room to another 
I will open the windows to let you breathe. Monte Cristo had already seen the breakfast room and the salon on the ground floor. Albert led him first to his atelier, which was, as we have said, his favourite apartment. Monte Cristo quickly appreciated all that Albert had collected here old cabinets, Japanese porcelain, Oriental stuffs, Venetian glass, arms from all parts of the world. Everything was familiar to him, and at first glance he recognised their date, their country, and their origin. Morcerf had expected he should be the guide. On the contrary, it was he who, under the Count's guidance, followed a course of archaeology, mineralogy, and natural history. They descended to the first floor. Albert led his guest into the salon. The salon was filled with the works of modern artists. There were landscapes by Dupré, with their long reeds and tall trees, their lowing oxen and marvellous skies. De la Croix's Arabian cavaliers with their long white burnouses, their shining belts, their damasked arms, their horses, who tore each other with their teeth while their riders contended fiercely with their maces. Aquarelle of Boulanger, representing Notre-Dame de Paris, with that vigour that makes the artist the rival of the poet. There were paintings by Diaz, who makes his flowers more beautiful than flowers, his sons more brilliant than the sun. Designs by de Camp, as vividly coloured as those of Salvatore Rosa, but more poetic. Pastels by Giraud and Müller, representing children like angels and women with the features of a virgin. Sketches torn from the album of Dozat's Travels in the East, that had been made in a few seconds on the saddle of a camel, or beneath the dome of a mosque. In a word, all that modern art can give in exchange and as recompense for the art lost and gone with ages long since past. Albert expected to have something new this time to show to the traveller, but to his great surprise, the latter, without seeking for the signatures, many of which, indeed, were only initials, named instantly the author of every picture in such a manner that it was easy to see that each name was not only known to him, but that each style associated with it had been appreciated and studied by him. From the salon they passed into the bedchamber. It was a model of taste and simple elegance. A single portrait, signed by Leopold Robert, shone in its carved and gilded frame. This portrait attracted the Count of Monte Cristo's attention, for he made three rapid steps in the chamber and stopped suddenly before it. It was the portrait of a young woman of five or six and twenty, with a dark complexion and light and lustrous eyes, veiled beneath long lashes. She wore the picturesque costume of the Catalan fisherwoman, a red and black bodice, and golden pins in her hair. She was looking at the sea, and her form was outlined on the blue ocean and sky. The light was so faint in the room that Albert did not perceive the pallor that spread itself over the Count's visage, or the nervous heaving of his chest and shoulders. Silence prevailed for an instant during which Monte Cristo gazed intently on the picture. "'You have there a most charming mistress, Viscount,' said the Count in a perfectly calm tone. "'And this costume, a ball costume, doubtless, becomes her admirably.' "'Ah, monsieur,' returned Albert, "'I would never forgive you this mistake if you had seen another picture besides this. You do not know my mother. She it is whom you see here.' She had her portrait painted thus six or eight years ago. This costume is a fancy one. 
it appears, and the resemblance is so great that I think I shall see my mother the same as she was in 1830. The Countess had this portrait painted during the Count's absence. She doubtless intended giving him an agreeable surprise, but, strange to say, this portrait seemed to displease my father, and the value of the picture, which is, as you see, one of the best works of Leopold Robert, could not overcome his dislike to it. It is true, between ourselves, that Monsieur de Morcerf is one of the most assiduous peers at Luxembourg, a general renowned for theory, but a most mediocre amateur of art. It is different with my mother, who paints exceedingly well, and who, unwilling to part with so valuable a picture, gave it to me to put here, where it would be less likely to displease Monsieur de Morcerf, whose portrait, by Gros, I will also show you. Excuse my talking of family matters, but as I shall have the honour of introducing you to the Count, I tell you this to prevent you making any allusions to this picture. The picture seems to have a malign influence, for my mother rarely comes here without looking at it, and still more rarely does she look at it without weeping. This disagreement is the only one that has ever taken place between the Count and Countess, who are still as much united, although married more than twenty years, as on the first day of their wedding. Monte Cristo glanced rapidly at Albert, as if to seek a hidden meaning in his words, but it was evident the young man uttered them in the simplicity of his heart. Now, said Albert, that you have seen all my treasures, allow me to offer them to you, unworthy as they are. Consider yourself as in your own house, and to put yourself still more at your ease, pray accompany me to the apartments of Monsieur de Morcerf he whom I wrote from Rome an account of the services you rendered me, and to whom I announced your promised visit. And I may say that both the Count and Countess anxiously desire to thank you in person. You are somewhat blasé, I know, and family scenes have not much effect on Sinbad the sailor, who has seen so many others. However, accept what I propose to you as an initiation into Parisian life, a life of politeness, visiting and introductions. Monte Cristo bowed without making any answer. He accepted the offer without enthusiasm and without regret, as one of those conventions of society which every gentleman looks upon as a duty. Albert summoned his servant and ordered him to acquaint Monsieur and Madame de Morcerf of the arrival of the Count of Monte Cristo. Albert followed him with the Count, when they arrived at the antechamber above the door was visible a shield which by its rich ornaments and its harmony with the rest of the furniture indicated the importance the owner attached to this blason monte cristo stopped and examined it attentively asia seven merlets or placed a bender said he these are doubtless your family arms except the knowledge of blasons that enables me to decipher them I am very ignorant of heraldry. I, a count of a fresh creation, fabricated in Tuscany by the aid of a commandery of St. Stephen, and who would not have taken the trouble, had I not been told that when you travel much it is necessary. Besides, you must have something on the panels of your carriage to escape being searched by the custom-house officers. Excuse my putting such a question to you. It is not indiscreet returned Morcerf, with the simplicity of conviction. You have guessed rightly. 
these are our arms that is those of my father but they are as you see joined to another shield which has a jewel a silver tower which are my mother's by her side i am spanish but the family of morcerf is french and i have heard one of the oldest of the south of france yes replied monte cristo these blasons approve of that almost all the armed pilgrims that went to the holy land took for their arms either a cross in honour of their mission or birds of passage in sign of the long voyage they were about to undertake and which they hoped to accomplish on the wings of faith one of your ancestors had joined the crusades and supposing it to be only that of saint louis that makes you mount to the thirteenth century which is tolerably ancient it is possible said morcerf my father has in his study a genealogical tree which will tell you all that and on which i made commentaries that would have greatly edified osier and jocor at present i no longer think of it and yet i must tell you that we are beginning to occupy ourselves greatly with these things under our popular government well then your government would do well to choose from the past something better than the things that i have noticed on your monuments and which have no heraldic meaning whatever as for you viscount continued monte cristo to morcerf you are more fortunate than the government for your arms are really beautiful and speak to the imagination yes you are at once from provence and spain that explains if the portrait you showed me be like the dark hue i so much admired on the visage of the noble catalan it would have required the penetration of oedipus or the sphinx to have divined the irony the count concealed beneath these words apparently uttered with the greatest politeness morcerf thanked him with a smile and pushed open the door above which were his arms and which as we have said opened into the salon in the most conspicuous part of the salon was another portrait it was that of a man from five to eight and thirty in the uniform of a general officer wearing the double epaulette of heavy bullion that indicates superior rank the ribbon of the legion of honor around his neck which showed he was a commander and on the right breast the star of a grand officer of the order of the saviour and on the left that of the grand cross of charles trois which proved that the person represented by the picture had served in the wars of greece and spain or what was just the same thing as regarded decorations had fulfilled some diplomatic mission in the two countries monte cristo was engaged in examining this portrait with no less care than he had bestowed upon the other when another door opened and he found himself opposite to the count of morcerf in person he was a man of forty to forty-five years but he seemed at least fifty and his black moustache and eyebrows contrasted strangely with his almost white hair which was cut short in the military fashion he was dressed in plain clothes and wore at his buttonhole the ribbons of the different orders to which he belonged he entered with a tolerably dignified step and some little haste monte cristo saw him advance towards him without making a single step it seemed as if his feet were rooted to the ground and his eyes on the count of morcerf father said the young man i have the honor of presenting to you the count of monte cristo the generous friend whom i had the good fortune to meet in the critical situation of which i have told you you are most welcome monsieur said the count of morcerf saluting monte cristo with a smile and monsieur 
has rendered our house in preserving its only heir, a service which ensures him our eternal gratitude. As he said these words, the Count of Morcerf pointed to a chair, while he seated himself in another opposite the window. Monte Cristo, in taking the seat Morcerf offered him, placed himself in such a manner as to remain concealed in the shadow of the large velvet curtains, and read on the careworn and livid features of the Count a whole history of secret griefs written in each wrinkle time had planted there. "'The Countess,' said Morcerf, "'was at her toilette when she was informed of the visit she was about to receive. She will, however, be in the salon in ten minutes.' "'It is a great honour to me,' returned Monte Cristo, "'to be thus on the first day of my arrival in Paris, "'brought in contact with a man whose merit equals his reputation, "'and to whom fortune has for once been equitable. "'But has she not still on the plains of Metige, "'or in the mountains of Atlas, a martial staff to offer you?' "'Oh,' replied Morcerf, reddening slightly, "'I have left the service, monsieur.' made a peer at the restoration i served through the first campaign under the orders of marshal bourmont i could therefore expect a higher rank and who knows what might have happened had the elder branch remained on the throne but the revolution of july was it seems sufficiently glorious to allow itself to be ungrateful and it was so for all services that did not date from the imperial period. I tendered my resignation, for when you have gained your epaulets on the battlefield, you do not know how to manoeuvre on the slippery grounds of the salon. I have hung up my sword and cast myself into politics. I have devoted myself to industry. I study the useful arts." during the twenty years i served i often wished to do so but i had not the time these are the ideas that render your nation superior to any other returned monte cristo a gentleman of high birth possessor of an ample fortune you have consented to gain your promotion as an obscure soldier step by step this is uncommon then become general peer of france commander of the legion of honour you consent to again commence a second apprenticeship without any other hope of any other desire than that of one day becoming useful to your fellow creatures this indeed is praiseworthy nay more it is sublime albert looked on and listened with astonishment he was not used to see monte cristo give vent to such bursts of enthusiasm "'Alas!' continued the stranger, doubtless to dispel the slight cloud that covered Morcerf's brow. "'We do not act thus in Italy. We grow according to our race and our species, and we pursue the same lines, and often the same uselessness, all our lives.' "'But, monsieur,' said the Count of Morcerf, "'for a man of your merit, Italy is not a country, and France opens her arms to receive you. Respond to her call.' France will not, perhaps, be always ungrateful. She treats her children ill, but she always welcomes strangers. Ah, father, said Albert with a smile, it is evident you do not know the Count of Monte Cristo. 
He despises all honours, and contents himself with those written on his passport. "'That is the most just remark,' replied the stranger, "'I have ever heard made concerning myself.' "'You have been free to choose your career,' observed the Count of Morcerf with a sigh, "'and you have chosen the path strewed with flowers.' "'Precisely, monsieur,' replied Monte Cristo with one of those smiles that a painter could never represent or a physiologist analyse. "'If I did not fear to fatigue you,' said the general, evidently charmed with the Count's manners, "'I would have taken you to the chamber. There is a debate very curious to those who are strangers to our modern senators.' "'I shall be most grateful, monsieur, if you will at some future time renew your offer.' but I have been flattered with the hope of being introduced to the Countess, and I will therefore wait. "'Ah, here is my mother,' cried the Viscount. Monte Cristo turned round hastily, and saw Madame de Morcerf at the entrance of the salon, at the door opposite to that by which her husband had entered, pale and motionless. When Monte Cristo turned around, she let fall her arm, which for some unknown reason had been resting on the gilded doorpost. She had been there some moments, and had heard the last words of the visitor. The latter rose and bowed to the countess, who inclined herself without speaking. "'Ah, good heavens, madame,' said the count, "'are you ill, or is it the heat of the room that affects you?' "'Are you ill, mother?' cried the viscount, springing towards her. She thanked them both with a smile. "'No,' returned she, but I feel some emotion on seeing for the first time the man without whose intervention we should have been in tears and desolation, monsieur, continued the countess, advancing with the majesty of a queen. I owe to you the life of my son, and for this I bless you. Now I thank you for the pleasure you give me in thus affording me the opportunity of thanking you, as I have blessed you from the bottom of my heart." The Count bowed again, but lower than before. He was even paler than Mercedes. "'Madame,' said he, "'the Count and yourself recompense too generously a simple action. To save a man, to spare a father's feelings, or a mother's sensibility, is not to do a good action, but a simple deed of humanity.' At these words, uttered with the most exquisite sweetness and politeness, Madame de Morcerf replied, "'It is very fortunate for my son, monsieur, that he found such a friend, and I thank God that things are thus.' And Mercedes raised her fine eyes to heaven with so fervent an expression of gratitude that the Count fancied he saw tears in them. Monsieur de Morcerf approached her. "'Madame,' said he, "'I have already made my excuses to the Count for quitting him.' and I pray you to do so also. The sitting commences at two. It is now three, and I am to speak. Go then, and monsieur and I will strive our best to forget your absence, replied the countess, with the same tone of deep feeling. Monsieur, continued she, turning to Monte Cristo, will you do us the honour of passing the rest of the day with us? Believe me, madam, I feel most grateful for your kindness, but I go out of my travelling carriage at your door this morning, 
and i am ignorant how i am installed in paris which i scarcely know this is but a trifling inquietude i know but one that may be appreciated we shall have the pleasure another time said the countess you promise that monte cristo inclined himself without answering but the gesture might pass for assent i will not detain you monsieur continued the countess i would not have our gratitude become indiscreet or importunate my dear count said albert i will endeavour to return your politeness at rome and place my coupe at your disposal until your own be ready a thousand thanks for your kindness viscount returned the count of monte cristo but i suppose that monsieur bertuccio has suitably employed the four hours and a half i have given him and that i shall find a carriage of some sort ready at the door albert was used to the count's manner of proceeding he knew that like nero he was in search of the impossible and nothing astonished him but wishing to judge with his own eyes how far the count's orders had been executed he accompanied him to the door of the house monte cristo was not deceived as soon as he appeared in the count of morcerf's antechamber a footman the same who at rome had brought the count's card to the two young men and announced his visit sprang into the vestibule and when he arrived at the door the illustrious traveller found his carriage awaiting him it was a coupe of collars building and with horses and harness for which drake had to the knowledge of all the lions of paris refused on the previous day seven hundred guineas monsieur said the count to albert i do not ask you to accompany me to my house as i can only show you a habitation fitted up in a hurry and i have as you know a reputation to keep as regards not being taken by surprise give me therefore one more day before i invite you i shall then be certain not to fall in my hospitality if you ask me for a day count i know what to anticipate it will not be a house i shall see but a palace you have decidedly some genius at your control ma foi spread that idea replied the count of monte cristo putting his foot on the velvet-lined steps of his splendid carriage and that will be worth something to me among the ladies as he spoke he sprang into the vehicle the door was closed but not so rapidly that monte cristo failed to perceive the almost imperceptible movement which stirred the curtains of the apartment in which he had left madame de morcerf when albert returned to his mother he found her in the boudoir reclining in a large velvet armchair the whole room so obscure that only the shining spangle fastened here and there to the drapery and the angles of the gilded frames of the pictures showed with some degree of brightness in the gloom albert could not see the face of the countess as it was covered with a thin veil she had put on her head and which fell over her features in misty folds but it seemed to him as though her voice had altered he could distinguish amid the perfumes of the roses and the heliotropes in the flower stands the sharp and fragrant odor of volatile salts and he noticed in one of the chaste cups on the mantelpiece the countess's smelling bottle taken from its chagrin case and exclaimed in a tone of uneasiness as he entered my dear mother have you been ill during my absence no no albert but you know these roses tuberoses and orange flowers throw out first before one is used to them such violent perfumes 
"'Then, my dear mother,' said Albert, putting his hand to the bell, "'they must be taken into the antechamber. "'You are really ill, and just now were so pale as you came into the room.' "'Was I pale, Albert?' "'Yes, a pallor that suits you admirably, mother, "'but which did not the less alarm my father and myself.' "'Did your father speak of it?' inquired Mercedes eagerly. "'No, madame, but do you not remember that he spoke of the fact to you?' "'Yes, I do remember,' replied the countess. A servant entered, summoned by Albert's ring of the bell. "'Take these flowers into the anteroom or dressing-room,' said the viscount. "'They make the countess ill.' The footman obeyed his orders. A long pause ensued, which lasted until all the flowers were removed. "'What is this name of Monte Cristo? inquired the countess when the servant had taken away the last vase of flowers is it a family name or the name of the estate or a simple title i believe mother it is merely a title the count purchased an island in the tuscan archipelago and as he told you today has founded a commandery you know the same thing was done for saint stephen of florence saint george constantinian of parma and even for the order of malta except this he has no pretension to nobility and calls himself a chance count although the general opinion at rome is that the count is a man of very high distinction his manners are admirable said the countess at least as far as i could judge in the few minutes he remained there they are perfect mother so perfect that they surpass by far all i have known in the leading aristocracy of the three proudest nobilities of europe the english the spanish and the german the countess paused a moment then after a slight hesitation she resumed you have seen my dear albert i ask the question as a mother you have seen monsieur de monte cristo in his house you are quick-sighted have much knowledge of the world more tact than is usual at your age do you think the count is really what he appears to be what does he appear to be why you have just said a man of high distinction i told you my dear mother he was esteemed such but what is your opinion albert i must tell you that i have not come to any decided opinion respecting him but i think him a maltese i do not ask you of his origin but what he is ah what he is that is quite another thing i have seen so many remarkable things in him that if you would have me really say what i think i shall reply that i really do look upon him as one of byron's heroes whom misery has marked with a fatal brand some manfred some lara some werner one of those wrecks as it were of some ancient family who disinherited of their patrimony have achieved one by the force of their adventurous genius which has placed them above the laws of societe you say i say that monte cristo is an island in the midst of mediterranean without inhabitants or garrison the resort of smugglers of all nations and pirates of every flag who knows whether or not these industrious worthies do not pay to their feudal lord some dues for his protection that is possible said the countess reflecting never mind continued the young man smuggler or not you must agree mother dear 
as you have seen him that the count of monte cristo is a remarkable man who will have the greatest success in the salons of paris why this very morning in my rooms he made his entree amongst us by striking every man of us with amazement not even excepting chateau renaud and what do you suppose is the count's age inquired mercedes evidently attaching great importance to this question thirty-five or thirty-six mother so young it is impossible said mercedes replying at the same time to what albert said as well as to her own private reflection it is the truth however three or four times he has said to me and certainly without the slightest premeditation at such a period i was five years old at another ten years old at another twelve and i induced by curiosity which kept me alive to these details have compared the dates and never found him inaccurate the age of this singular man who is of no age is then i am certain thirty-five besides mother remark how vivid his eye how raven black his hair and his brow though so pale is free from wrinkles he is not only vigorous but also young the countess bent her head as if beneath a heavy wave of bitter thoughts and has this man displayed a friendship for you albert she asked with a nervous shudder i am inclined to think so and do you like him why he pleases me in spite of franz d'epinay who tries to convince me that he is a being returned from the other world the countess shuddered albert she said in a voice which was altered by emotion i have always put on you your guard against new acquaintances now you are a man and are able to give me advice yet i repeat to you albert be prudent why my dear mother it is necessary in order to make your advice turn to account that i should know beforehand what i have to distrust the count never plays he only drinks pure water tinged with a little sherry and is so rich that he cannot without intending to laugh at me try to borrow money what then have i to fear from him you are right said the countess and my fears are weakness especially when directed against a man who has saved your life how did your father receive him albert it is necessary that we should be more than complaisant to the count monsieur de morcerf is sometimes occupied his business makes him reflective and he might without intending it nothing could be in better taste than my father's demeanour madame said albert nay more he is seemingly greatly flattered at two or three compliments which the count very skilfully and agreeably paid him with as much ease as if he had known him these thirty years each of these little tickling arrows must have pleased my father added albert with a laugh and thus they parted the best possible friends and monsieur de morcerf even wished to take him to the chamber to hear the speakers the countess made no reply she fell into so deep a reverie that her eyes gradually closed the young man standing up before her gazed upon her with that filial affection which is so tender and endearing with children whose mothers are still young and handsome then after seeing her eyes closed and hearing her breathe gently he believed she had dropped asleep and left the apartment on tiptoe 
closing the door after him with the utmost precaution this devil of a fellow he uttered shaking his head i said at the time you would create a sensation here and i measure his effect by an infallible thermometer my mother has noticed him and he must therefore perforce be remarkable he went down to the stables not without some slight annoyance when he remembered that the count of monte cristo had laid his hands on a turnout which sent his bays down to second place in the opinion of connoisseurs most decidedly said he men are not equal and i must beg my father to develop this theorem in the chamber of peers End of chapter 41Chapter 42 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 42 Monsieur Bertuccio. Meanwhile, the Count had arrived at his house. It had taken him six minutes to perform the distance. But these six minutes were sufficient to induce twenty young men, who knew the price of the equipage they had been unable to purchase themselves, to put their horses in a gallop in order to see the rich foreigner who could afford to give twenty thousand francs apiece for his horses. The house Ali had chosen, and which was to serve as a town residence to Monte Cristo, was situated on the right hand as you ascend the Champs-Élysées. A thick clump of trees and shrubs rose in the centre, and masked a portion of the front around this shrubbery two alleys like two arms extended right and left and formed a carriage drive from the iron gates to a double portico on every step of which stood a porcelain vase filled with flowers this house isolated from the rest had besides the main entrance another in the rue fontieu even before the coachman had hailed the concierge the massy gates rolled on their hinges they had seen the count coming and at paris as everywhere else he was served with a rapidity of lightning the coachman entered and traversed the half circle without slackening his speed and the gates were closed ere the wheels had ceased to sound on the gravel the carriage stopped at the left side of the portico two men presented themselves at the carriage window the one was ali who smiling with an expression of the most sincere joy seemed amply repaid by a mere look from monte cristo the other bowed respectfully and offered his arm to assist the count in descending thanks monsieur bertuccio said the count springing lightly up the three steps of the portico and the notary he is in the small salon excellency returned bertuccio and the cards i ordered to be engraved as soon as you knew the number of the house your excellency it is done already i have been myself to the best engraver of the palais royal who did the plate in my presence the first card struck off was taken according to your orders to the baron d'anglars rue de la chaussee d'autin numero set the others are on the mantelpiece of your excellency's bedroom good what o'clock is it four o'clock Monte Cristo gave his hat, cane, and gloves to the same French footman who had called his carriage at the Count of Morcerf's, and then he passed into the small salon, preceded by Bertuccio, who showed him the way. "'These are but indifferent marbles in this antechamber,' said Monte Cristo. "'I trust all this will soon be taken away.' Bertuccio bowed. 
as the steward had said the notary awaited him in the small salon he was a simple-looking lawyer's clerk elevated to the extraordinary dignity of a provincial scrivener you are the notary empowered to sell the country house that i wish to purchase monsieur asked monte cristo yes count returned the notary is the deed of sale ready yes count have you bought it here it is very well and where is this house that i purchase asked the count carelessly addressing himself half to bertuccio half to the notary the steward made a gesture that signified i do not know the notary looked at the count with astonishment what said he does not the count know where the house he purchased is situated no returned the count the count does not know how should i know i have arrived from cadiz this morning i have never before been at paris and it is the first time i have ever set foot in france ah this is different the house you purchased is at auteuil at these words bertuccio turned pale and where is auteuil asked the count close by here monsieur replied the notary a little beyond passy a charming situation in the heart of the bois de boulogne so near as that said the count but that is not in the country what made you choose a house at the gates of paris monsieur bertuccio i cried the steward with a strange expression his excellency did not charge me to purchase this house if his excellency will recollect if he will think ah true observed monte cristo i recollect now i read the advertisement in one of the papers and was tempted by the false title a country house it is not yet too late cried bertuccio eagerly and if your excellency will entrust me with the commission i will find you a better at enkin or fontenay or rose or at bellevue oh no returned monte cristo negligently since i have this i will keep it and you are quite right said the notary who feared to lose his fee it is a charming place a well supplied with spring water and fine trees a comfortable habitation although abandoned for a long time without reckoning the furniture which although old is yet valuable now that old things are so much sought after i suppose the count has the tastes of the day to be sure returned monte cristo it is very convenient then it is more it is magnificent peste let us not lose such an opportunity returned monte cristo the deed if you please mr notary and he signed it rapidly after having first run his eye over that part of the deed in which were specified the situation of the house and the names of the proprietors bertuccio said he give fifty-five thousand francs to monsieur the steward left the room with a faltering step and returned with a bundle of banknotes which the notary counted like a man who never gives a receipt for money until after he is sure it is all there and now demanded the count are all the forms complied with all sir have you the keys they are in the hands of the concierge who takes care of the house but here is the order i have given him to install a count in his new possession very well said monte cristo 
made a sign with his hand to the notary which said i have no further need of you you may go but observed the honest notary the count is i think mistaken it is only fifty thousand francs everything included and your fee is included in the sum but have you not come from Otey here yes certainly well then it is but fair that you should be paid for your loss of time and trouble said the count and he made a gesture of polite dismissal the notary left the room backwards and bowing down to the ground it was the first time he had ever met a similar client see this gentleman out said the count to bertuccio and the steward followed the notary out of the room scarcely was the count alone when he drew from his pocket a book closed with a lock and opened it with a key which he wore round his neck and which never left him after having sought for a few minutes he stopped at a leaf which had several notes and compared them with the date deed of sale which lay on the table Auteuil, rue de la fontaine numero vingt-huit it is indeed the same said he and now am i to rely upon an avowal extorted by religious or physical terror however in an hour i shall know all bertuccio cried he striking a light hammer with a pliant handle on a small gong bertuccio the steward appeared at the door monsieur bertuccio said the count did you never tell me that you had travelled in france in some parts of france yes excellency you know the environs of paris then no excellency no returned the steward with a sort of nervous trembling which monte cristo a connoisseur in all emotions rightly attributed to great disquietude it is unfortunate returned he that you have never visited the environs for i wish to see my new property this evening and had you gone with me you could have given me some useful information to otoy cried bertuccio whose copper complexion became livid i, I go to otoy well what is there surprising in that when i live at otoy you must come there as you belong to my service bertuccio hung down his head before the imperious look of his master and remained motionless without making any answer why what has happened to you are you going to make me ring a second time for the carriage asked monte cristo in the same tone that louis XIV pronounced the famous i have been almost obliged to wait bertuccio made but one bound to the antechamber and cried in a hoarse voice his excellency's horses monte cristo wrote two or three notes and as he sealed the last the steward appeared your excellency's carriage is at the door said he well take your hat and gloves returned monte cristo am i to accompany you your excellency cried bertuccio certainly you must give the orders for i intend residing at the house it was unexampled for a servant of the count's to dare to dispute an order of his so the steward without saying a word followed his master who got into the carriage and signed to him to follow which he did taking his place respectfully on the front seat end of chapter 42
Chapter forty three of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty three The House at Auteuil. Monte Cristo noticed, as they descended the staircase, that Bertuccio signed himself in the Corsican manner, that is, had formed the sign of the cross in the air with his thumb, and as he seated himself in the carriage, muttered a short prayer. Any one but a man of exhaustless thirst for knowledge would have had pity on seeing the steward's extraordinary repugnance for the Count's projected drive without the walls, but the Count was too curious to let Bertuccio off from this little journey. In twenty minutes they were at Auteuil. The steward's emotion had continued to augment as they entered the village. Bertuccio crouched in the corner of the carriage began to examine with a feverish anxiety every house they passed. "'Tell them to stop at the Rue de la Fontaine, numero vingt said the Count, fixing his eyes on the steward to whom he gave this order. Bertuccio's forehead was covered with perspiration. However, he obeyed, and leaning out of the window he cried to the coachman, "'Rue de la Fontaine, numero vingt Number 28 was situated at the extremity of the village. During the drive night had set in, and darkness gave the surroundings the artificial appearance of a scene on the stage. The carriage stopped. The footman sprang off the box and opened the door. "'Well,' said the Count, "'you do not get out, Monsieur Bertuccio. You are going to stay in the carriage, then? What are you thinking of this evening?' Bertuccio sprang out and offered his shoulder to the count who this time leaned upon it as he descended the three steps of the carriage knock said the count and announce me bertuccio knocked the door opened and the concierge appeared what is it asked he it is your new master my good fellow said the footman and he held out to the concierge the notary's order the house is sold then demanded the concierge and this gentleman is coming to live here yes my friend returned the count and i will endeavour to give you no cause to regret your old master oh monsieur said the concierge i shall not have much cause to regret him for he came here but seldom it is five years since he was here last and he did well to sell the house for it did not bring him in anything at all what was the name of your old master said monte cristo the marquis of saint marin ah i am sure he has not sold the house for what he gave for it the marquis of saint marin returned the count the name is not unknown to me the marquis of saint marin and he appeared to meditate an old gentleman continued the concierge a staunch follower of the bourbon he had an only daughter who married monsieur de villefort who had been the king's attorney at nîmes and afterwards at versailles monte cristo glanced at bertuccio who became whiter than the wall against which he leaned to prevent himself from falling and is not this daughter dead demanded monte cristo i fancy i have heard so yes monsieur one and twenty years ago and since then we have not seen the poor marquis three times thanks thanks said monte cristo judging from the steward's utter prostration that he could not stretch the cord further without danger of breaking it give me a light shall i accompany you monsieur 
"'No, it is unnecessary. Bertuccio will show me a light.' And Monte Cristo accompanied these words by the gift of two gold pieces, which produced a torrent of thanks and blessings from the concierge. "'Ah, monsieur,' said he, after having vainly searched on the mantelpiece and the shelves, "'I have not got any candles.' "'Take one of the carriage lamps, Bertuccio,' said the Count, "'and show me the apartments.' The steward obeyed in silence, but it was easy to see, from the manner in which the hand that held the light trembled, how much it cost him to obey. They went over a tolerably large ground floor. A second floor consisted of a salon, a bathroom, and two bedrooms. Near one of the bedrooms they came to a winding staircase that led down to the garden. "'Ah, here is a private staircase,' said the Count. "'That is convenient.' light me monsieur bertuccio it leads to the garden and pray how do you know that it ought to do so at least well let us be sure of that bertuccio sighed and went on first the stairs did indeed lead to the garden at the outer door the steward paused go on monsieur bertuccio said the count but he who was addressed stood there stupefied bewildered stunned his haggard eyes glanced around as if in search of the traces of some terrible event and with his clinched hands he seemed striving to shut out horrible recollections well insisted the count no no cried bertuccio settling down the lantern at the angle of the interior wall no monsieur it is impossible i can go no further what does this mean demanded the irresistible voice of monte cristo why you must see your excellency cried the steward that this is not natural that having a house to purchase you purchase it exactly at auteuil and that purchasing it at auteuil this house should be number twenty eight rue de la fontaine oh why did i not tell you all i am sure you would not have forced me to come i hoped your house would have been some other one than this as if there was not another house at auteuil than that of the assassination what what cried monte cristo stopping suddenly what words do you utter devil of a man corsican that you are always mysterious or superstitious come take the lantern and let us visit the garden you are not afraid of ghosts with me i hope bertuccio raised the lantern and obeyed the door as it opened disclosed a gloomy sky in which the moon strove vainly to struggle through a sea of clouds that covered her with billows of vapour which she illumined for an instant only to sink into obscurity the steward wished to turn to the left no no monsieur said monte cristo what is the use of following the alleys here is a beautiful lawn let us go on straight forwards bertuccio wiped the perspiration from his brow but obeyed however he continued to take the left hand monte cristo on the contrary took the right hand arrived near a clump of trees he stopped the steward could not restrain himself more monsieur move away i entreat you you are exactly on the spot what spot where he fell my dear monsieur bertuccio said monte cristo laughing control yourself we are not at sartene or at corte this is not the corsican arbor but an english garden badly kept i own 
but still you must not calumniate it for that monsieur i implore you do not stay here i think you are going mad bertuccio said the count coldly if that is the case i warn you i shall have you put in a lunatic asylum alas excellency returned bertuccio joining his hands and shaking his head in a manner that would have excited the count's laughter had not thoughts of a superior interest occupied him and rendered him attentive to the least revelation of this timorous conscience alas excellency the evil has arrived monsieur bertuccio said the count i am very glad to tell you that while you gesticulate you wring your hands and roll your eyes like a man possessed by a devil who will not leave him and i have always observed that the devil most obstinate to be expelled is a secret i knew you were a corsican i knew you were gloomy and always brooding over some old history of the vendetta and i overlooked that in italy because in italy those things are thought nothing of but in france they are considered in very bad taste there are gendarmes who occupy themselves with such affairs judges who condemn and scaffolds which avenge bertuccio clasped his hands and as in all these evolutions he did not let fall the lantern the light showed his pale and altered countenance monte cristo examined him with the same look that at rome he had bent upon the execution of andrea and then in a tone that made a shudder pass through the veins of the poor steward the abbe busoni then told me an untruth said he when after his journey in france in eighteen twenty nine he sent you to me with a letter of recommendation in which he enumerated all your valuable qualities well i shall write to the abbe i shall hold him responsible for his protege's misconduct and i shall soon know all about this assassination only i warn you that when i reside in a country i conform to all its code and i have no wish to put myself within the compass of the french laws for your sake oh do not do that excellency i have always served you faithfully cried bertuccio in despair i have always been an honest man and as far as lay in my power i have done good i do not deny it returned the count but why are you thus agitated it is a bad sign a quiet conscience does not occasion such paleness in the cheeks and such fever in the hands of a man but your excellency replied bertuccio hesitatingly did not the abbe busoni who heard my confession in the prison at nimes tell you that i had a heavy burden upon my conscience yes but as he said you would make an excellent steward i concluded you had stolen that was all oh your excellency returned bertuccio in deep contempt or as you are a corsican that you had been unable to resist the desire of making a stiff as you call it yes my good master cried bertuccio casting himself at the count's feet it was simply vengeance nothing else i understand that but i do not understand that what it is that galvanizes you in this manner but monsieur it is very natural returned bertuccio since it was in this house that my vengeance was accomplished what my house oh your excellency it was not yours then whose then the marquis de saint meran 
i think the concierge said what had you to revenge on the marquis de Saint-Méran? oh it was not on him monsieur it was on another that is strange returned monte cristo seeming to yield to his reflections that you should find yourself without any preparation in a house where the event happened that causes you so much remorse monsieur said the steward it is fatality i am sure first you purchase a house at auteuil this house is the one where i have committed an assassination you descend to the garden by the same staircase by which he descended you stop at the spot where he received the blow and two paces farther in the grave in which he had just buried his child this is not chance for chance in this case is too much like providence well amiable corsican let us suppose it is providence i always suppose anything people please and besides you must concede something to diseased minds come collect yourself and tell me all i have related it but once and that was to the abbe busoni such things continued bertuccio shaking his head are only related under the seal of confession then said the count i refer you to your confessor turn chartreux or trappist and relate your secrets but as for me i do not like anyone who is alarmed by such phantasmas and i do not choose that my servants should be afraid to walk in the garden of an evening i confess i am not very desirous of a visit from the commissary of police for in italy justice is only paid when silent in france she is paid only when she speaks pest i thought you somewhat corsican a great deal smuggler and an excellent steward but i see you have other strings to your bow you are no longer in my service monsieur bertuccio oh your excellency your excellency cried the steward struck with terror at this threat if that is the only reason i cannot remain in your service i will tell all for if i quit you it will only be to go to the scaffold that is different replied monte cristo but if you intend to tell an untruth reflect it were better not to speak at all no monsieur i swear to you by my hopes of salvation i will tell you all for the abbe busoni himself only knew a part of my secret but i pray you go away from that plane tree the moon is just bursting through the clouds and there standing where you do and wrapped in that cloak that conceals your figure you remind me of monsieur de villefort what cried monte cristo it was monsieur de villefort your excellency knows him the former royal attorney at nîmes yes who married the marquis of samaran's daughter yes who enjoyed the reputation of being the most severe the most upright the most rigid magistrate on the bench well monsieur said bertuccio this man with this spotless reputation well was a villain bah replied monte cristo impossible it is as i tell you oh, really said monte cristo have you proof of this i had it and you have lost it how stupid yes but by careful search it might be recovered really returned the count relate it to me for it begins to interest me 
and the count humming an air from lucia went to sit down on a bench while bertuccio followed him collecting his thoughts bertuccio remained standing before him end of chapter 43「Chapter 44. The Vendetta "'At what point shall I begin my story, Your Excellency?' asked Bertuccio. "'Where you please,' returned Monte Cristo, "'since I know nothing at all of it. "'I thought the Abbe Busoni had told Your Excellency.' some particulars doubtless but that is seven or eight years ago and i have forgotten them then i can speak without fear of tiring your excellency go on monsieur bertuccio you will supply the want of the evening papers the story begins in eighteen fifteen ah said monte cristo eighteen fifteen is not yesterday no monsieur and yet i recollect all things as clearly as if they had happened but then i had a brother an elder brother who was in the service of the emperor he had become lieutenant in a regiment composed entirely of corsicans this brother was my only friend we became orphans i at five he at eighteen he brought me up as if i had been his son and in eighteen fourteen he married when the emperor returned from the island of elba my brother instantly joined the army was slightly wounded at waterloo and retired with the army beyond the loire but that is the history of the hundred days monsieur bertuccio said the count unless i am mistaken it has already been written excuse me excellency but these details are necessary and you promised to be patient go on i will keep my word one day we received a letter i should tell you that we lived in a little village of rogliano at the extremity of cap corso this letter was from my brother he told us that the army was disbanded and that he should return by chateauroux clermont ferrand le puy and nîmes and if i had any money he prayed me to leave it for him at nîmes with an innkeeper with whom i had dealings in the smuggling line said monte cristo hey your excellency everyone must live certainly go on i loved my brother tenderly as i told your excellency and i resolved not to send the money but to take it to him myself i possessed a thousand francs i left five hundred with assunta my sister-in-law and with the other five hundred i set off for nîmes it was easy to do so and as i had my boat and a lading to take in at sea everything favoured my project but after we had taken in our cargo the wind became contrary so that we were four or five days without being able to enter the rhone at last however we succeeded and worked up to arles i left the boat between bellegarde and beaucaire and took the road to nîmes we are getting to the story now yes your excellency excuse me but as you will see i only tell you what is absolutely necessary just at this time the famous massacres took place in the south of france 
three brigands called Trestaion, Trufemi, and Grafan publicly assassinated everybody whom they suspected of Bonapartism. You have doubtless heard of these massacres, Your Excellency. Vaguely, I was far from France at that period. Go on. As I entered Nîmes, I literally waded in blood. At every step you encountered dead bodies and bands of murderers who killed, plundered, and burned. At the sight of the slaughter and devastation, I became terrified, not for myself, for I, a simple Corsican fisherman, had nothing to fear. On the contrary, that time was most favourable for us smugglers. But for my brother, a soldier of the Empire, returning from the army of the Loire, with his uniform and his epaulets, there was everything to apprehend. I hastened to the innkeeper. My misgivings had been but too true. My brother had arrived the previous evening at Nîmes, and at the very door of the house where he was about to demand hospitality, he had been assassinated. I did all in my power to discover the murderers, but no one does tell me their names. So much were they dreaded. I even thought of that French justice of which I had heard so much, and which feared nothing, and I went to the king's attorney. "'And this king's attorney was named Villefort?' asked Monte Cristo carelessly. "'Yes, Your Excellency. He came from Marseille, where he had been deputy procureur. His zeal had procured him advancement, and he was said to be one of the first who had informed the government of the departure from the island of Elba. "'Then,' said Monte Cristo, "'you went to him.' "'Monsieur,' I said, "'my brother was assassinated yesterday in the streets of Nîmes. I know not by whom, but it is your duty to find out. You are the representative of Justice here, and it is for justice to avenge those she has been unable to protect.' "'Who was your brother?' he asked. "'A lieutenant in the Corsican battalion.' "'A soldier of the Usurper, then?' "'A soldier of the French army.' "'Well,' replied he, "'he has smitten with the sword, and he has perished by the sword.' "'You are mistaken, monsieur,' I replied. "'He has perished by the poniard.' "'What do you want me to do?' asked the magistrate. "'I have already told you, avenge him.' "'On whom?' "'On his murderers.' "'How should I know who they are?' "'Order them to be sought for.' "'Why, your brother has been involved in a quarrel and killed in a duel. "'All these old soldiers commit excesses which were tolerated in the time of the Emperor, "'but which are not suffered now, "'for the people here do not like soldiers of such disorderly conduct.' "'Monsieur,' I replied, it is not for myself that I entreat your interference. I should grieve for him or avenge him, but my poor brother had a wife, and were anything to happen to me, the poor creature would perish from want, for my brother's pay alone kept her. Pray try and obtain a small government pension for her. Every revolution has its catastrophes, returned the Monsieur de Villefort. Your brother has been the victim of this... It is a misfortune, and government owes nothing to his family. If we are to judge by all the vengeance that the followers of the usurper exercised on the partisans of the king, 
when in their turn they were in power, your brother would be, today in all probability, condemned to death. What has happened is quite natural, and in conformity with the law of reprisals. What, cried I, do you, a magistrate, speak thus to me? All oh, those Corsicans are mad, on my honour, replied Monsieur de Villefort. They fancy that their countryman is still emperor. You have mistaken the time. You should have told me this two months ago. It is too late now. Go now at once, or I shall have you put out. I looked at him an instant to see if there was anything to hope from further entreaty. But he was a man of stone. I approached him and said in a low voice, Well, since you know the Corsicans so well, you know that they always keep their word. You think that it was a good deed to kill my brother, who was a Bonapartist, because you are a royalist? Well, I, who am a Bonapartist also, declare one thing to you, which is that I will kill you. From this moment I declare the vendetta against you. So protect yourself as well as you can, for the next time we meet your last hour has come. And before he had recovered from his surprise, I opened the door and left the room. "'Well, well,' said Monte Cristo, "'such an innocent-looking person as you are to do these things, Monsieur Bertuccio, and to a king's attorney at that. But did he know what was meant by the terrible word, vendetta?' He knew so well that from that moment he shut himself in his house and never went out unattended, seeking me high and low. Fortunately, I was so well concealed that he could not find me. Then he became alarmed and dared not stay any longer at Nîmes. So he solicited a change of residence, and as he was in reality very influential, he was nominated to Versailles. But as you know, a Corsican who has sworn to avenge himself cares not for distance. So his carriage, fast as it went, was never above a half a day's journey before me, who followed him on foot. The most important thing was not to kill him only, for I had an opportunity of doing so a hundred times, but to kill him without being discovered, at least without being arrested. I no longer belonged to myself, for I had my sister-in-law to protect and provide for three months. I watched Monsieur de Villefort for three months. He took not a step out of doors without my following him. At length I discovered that he went mysteriously to Auteuil. I followed him thither, and I saw him enter the house where we now are. Only, instead of entering by the great door that looks into the street, he came on horseback, or in his carriage, left the one or the other at the little inn, and entered by the gate you see there. Monte Cristo made a sign with his head, to show that he could discern in the darkness the door to which Bertuccio alluded. As I had nothing more to do at Versailles, I went to Auteuil, and gained all the information I could. If I wished to surprise him, it was evident this was the spot to lie in wait for him. The house belonged, as the concierge informed your excellency, to Monsieur de Saint-Méran, Villefort's father-in-law. 
Monsieur de Saint-Méran lived at Marseille, so that this country house was useless to him, and it was reported to be let to a young widow, known only by the name of the Baroness. One evening, as I was looking over the wall, I saw a young and handsome woman who was walking alone in that garden, which was not overlooked by any windows, and I guessed that she was awaiting Monsieur de Villefort. When she was sufficiently near for me to distinguish her features, I saw she was from eighteen to nineteen, tall and very fair. As she had a loose muslin dress on, and as nothing concealed her figure, I saw she would ere long become a mother. A few moments after, the little door was opened and a man entered. The young woman hastened to meet him. They threw themselves into each other's arms, embraced tenderly, and returned together in the house. The man was Monsieur de Villefort. I fully believed that when he went out in the night he would be forced to traverse the whole of the garden alone. And, asked the Count, did you ever know the name of this woman? No, Excellency, returned Bertuccio. You will see that I had no time to learn it. Go on. That evening, continued Bertuccio, I could have killed the procureur, but as I was not sufficiently acquainted with the neighborhood, I was fearful of not killing him on the spot, and that if his cries were overheard I might be taken, so I put it off until the next occasion. And in order that nothing should escape me, I took a chamber looking into the street bordered by the wall of the garden. Three days after, about seven o'clock in the evening, I saw a servant on horseback leave the house at full gallop and take the road to Sèvres. I concluded that he was going to Versailles, and I was not deceived. Three hours later, the man returned, covered with dust. His errand was performed, and two minutes after, another man on foot, muffled in a mantle, opened the little door of the garden, which he closed. After him, I descended rapidly. Although I had not seen Villefort's face, I recognized him by the beating of my heart. I crossed the street, and stopped at a post placed at the angle of the wall, and by means of which I had once before looked onto the garden. This time I did not content myself with looking, but I took my knife out of my pocket, felt that the point was sharp, and sprang over the wall. My first care was to run to the door. He had left a key in it, taking the simple precaution of turning it twice in the lock. Nothing, then, preventing my escape by this means. I examined the grounds. The garden was long and narrow. A stretch of smooth turf extended down the middle, and at the corners were clumps of trees with thick and massy foliage that made a background for the shrubs and flowers. In order to go from the door to the house, or from the house to the door, Monsieur de Villefort would be obliged to pass by one of these clumps of trees. It was the end of September. The wind blew violently. The faint glimpses of the pale moon, hidden momentarily by masses of dark clouds that were sweeping across the sky, whitened the gravel walks that led to the house, but were unable to pierce the obscurity of the thick shrubberies in which a man could conceal himself without any fear of discovery. I hid myself 
in the one nearest to the path Villefort must take, and scarcely was I there when amidst the gust of wind I fancied I heard groans. But you know, or rather you do not know, Your Excellency, that he who is about to commit an assassination fancies that he hears low cries perpetually ringing in his ears. Two hours passed thus, during which I imagined I heard moans repeatedly. Midnight struck. As the last stroke died away, I saw a faint light shine through the windows of the private staircase by which we have just descended. The door opened, and the man in the mantle reappeared. The terrible moment had come. But I had so long been prepared for it that my heart did not fail in the least. I drew my knife from my pocket again, opened it, and made ready to strike. The man in the mantle advanced towards me, but as he drew near I saw that he had a weapon in his hand. I was afraid, not of a struggle, but of a failure. When he was only a few paces from me I saw that what I had taken for a weapon was only a spade. I was still unable to divine for what reason Monsieur de Villefort had this spade in his hands. When he stopped close to the thicket where I was, glanced around, and began to dig a hole in the earth, I then perceived that he was hiding something under his mantle, which he laid on the grass in order to dig more freely. Then I confess curiosity mingled with hatred. I wished to see what Villefort was going to do there, and I remained motionless, holding my breath. Then an idea crossed my mind, which was confirmed when I saw the procureur lift from under his mantle a box, two feet long and six or eight inches deep. I let him place the box in the hole he had made. Then, while he stamped with his feet to remove all traces of his occupation, I rushed on him and plunged my knife into his breast, exclaiming, "'I am Giovanni Bertuccio. Thy death for my brothers, thy treasure for his widow, thou seest that my vengeance is more complete than I had hoped.' I know not if he heard these words. I think he did not, for he fell without a cry. I felt his blood gush over my face, but I was intoxicated. I was delirious and the blood refreshed instead of burning me. In a second I had disinterred the box. Then, that it might not be known I had done so, I filled up the hole, threw the spade over the wall, and rushed through the door, which I double-locked, carrying off the key. "'Ah,' said Monte Cristo, "'it seems to me this was nothing but murder and robbery.' "'No, Your Excellency,' returned Bertuccio. It was a vendetta followed by restitution. And was the sum a large one? It was not money. Ah, I recollect, replied the Count. Did you not say something of an infant? Yes, Excellency. I hastened to the river, sat down on the bank, and with my knife forced open the lock of the box. In a fine linen cloth, was wrapped a new-born child. Its purple visage and its violet-coloured hands showed that it had perished from suffocation, but as it was not yet cold, 
I hesitated to throw it into the water that ran at my feet. After a moment, I fancied that I felt a slight pulsation of the heart, and as I had been assistant at the hospital at Bastia, I did what a doctor would have done. I inflated the lungs by blowing air into them, and at the expiration of a quarter of an hour it began to breathe and cried feebly. In my turn I uttered a cry, but a cry of joy. "'God has not cursed me, then,' I cried, "'since he permits me to save the life of a human creature "'in exchange for the life I have taken away.' "'And what did you do with the child?' asked Monte Cristo. "'It was an embarrassing load for a man seeking to escape.' "'I had not for a moment the idea of keeping it, "'but I knew that at Paris there was an asylum where they received such creatures.' As I passed the city gates, I declared that I had found the child on the road, and I inquired where the asylum was. The box confirmed my statement. The linen proved that the infant belonged to wealthy parents. The blood with which I was covered might have proceeded from the child as well as from anyone else. No objection was raised, but they pointed out the asylum, which was situated at the upper end of the Rue d'Enfer, and after having taken the precaution of cutting the linen in two pieces so that one of the two letters which marked it was on the piece wrapped around the child while the other remained in my possession i rang the bell and fled with all speed a fortnight after i was at rogliano and i said to assunta console thyself sister israel is dead but he is avenged she demanded what i meant and when I had told her all, "'Giovanni,' said she, "'you should have brought this child with you. "'We would have replaced the parents it was lost, "'have called it Benedetto, "'and then, in consequence of this good action, "'God would have blessed us.' "'In reply, I gave her the half of the linen I had kept "'in order to reclaim him if we became rich.' "'What letters were marked on the linen?' said Monte Cristo an h and an n surmounted by a baron's coronet by heaven monsieur bertuccio you make use of heraldic terms where did you study heraldry in your service excellency where everything is learned go on i am curious to know two things what are they your excellency what became of this little boy for i think you told me it was a boy monsieur bertuccio no excellency i do not recollect telling you that i thought you did i must have been mistaken no you were not for it was in reality a little boy but your excellency wished to know two things what was the second the second was the crime of which you are accused when you asked for a confessor and the abbe busoni came to visit you at your request in the prison at nîmes the story will be very long excellency what matter you know i take but little sleep and i do not suppose you are very much inclined for it either bertuccio bowed and resumed his story partly to drown the recollections of the past that haunted me partly to supply the wants of the poor widow I eagerly returned to my trade of smuggler, which had become more easy 
since that relaxation of the laws which always follows a revolution the southern districts were ill-watched in particular in consequence of the disturbances that were perpetually breaking out in avignon nîmes or ouze we profited by this respite on the part of the government to make friends everywhere since my brother's assassination in the streets of nîmes i had never entered the town the result was that the innkeeper with whom we were connected seeing we would no longer come to him was forced to come to us and had established a branch to his inn on the road from belgarde to beaucaire at the sign of the pont du gard we had thus at egmort martigues or bouc a dozen places where we left our goods and where in case of necessity we concealed ourselves from the gendarme and custom-house officers smuggling is a profitable trade when a certain degree of vigour and intelligence is employed as for myself brought up in the mountains i had a double motive for fearing the gendarme and custom-house officers as my appearance before the judges would cause an inquiry and an inquiry always looks back into the past and in my past life they might find something far more grave than the selling of smuggled cigars or barrels of brandy without a permit so preferring death to capture i accomplished the most astonishing deeds and which more than once showed me that the too great care we took of our bodies is the only obstacle to the success of those projects which require rapid decision and vigorous and determined execution in reality when you have once devoted your life to your enterprises you are no longer the equal of other men or rather other men are no longer your equals and whosoever has taken this resolution feels his strength and resources doubled philosophy monsieur bertuccio interrupted the count you have done a little of everything in your life oh excellency no no but a philosophy at half-past ten at night is somewhat late yet i have no other observation to make for what you say is correct which is more than can be said for all philosophy my journeys became more and more extensive and more productive assunta took care of all and our little fortune increased one day as i was setting off on an expedition go said she at your return i will give you a surprise i questioned her but in vain she would tell me nothing and i departed our expedition lasted nearly six weeks we had been to lucca to take in oil to leghorn for english cottons and we ran out cargo without opposition and returned home full of joy when i entered the house the first thing i beheld in the middle of assunta's chamber was a cradle that might be called sumptuous compared with the rest of the furniture and in it a baby seven or eight months old i uttered a cry of joy the only moments of sadness i had known since the assassination of the procureur were caused by the recollection that i had abandoned this child for the assassination itself i had never felt any remorse poor assunta had guessed all she had profited by my absence and furnished with the half of the linen and having written down the day and hour at which i had deposited the child at the asylum had set off for paris and had reclaimed it no objection was raised and the infant was given up to her ah 
i confess your excellency when i saw this poor creature sleeping peacefully in its cradle i felt my eyes filled with tears ah santa cried i you are an excellent woman and heaven will bless you this said monte cristo is less correct than your philosophy it is only faith alas your excellency is right replied bertuccio and god made this infant the instrument of our punishment never did a perverse nature declare itself more prematurely and yet it was not owing to any fault in his bringing up he was a most lovely child with large blue eyes of that deep colour that harmonises so well with the blonde complexion only his hair which was too light gave his face a most singular expression and added to the vivacity of his look and the malice of his smile unfortunately there is a proverb which says that red is either altogether good or altogether bad the proverb was but too correct as regarded benedetto and even in his infancy he manifested the worst disposition it is true that the indulgence of his foster-mother encouraged him this child for whom my poor sister would go to the town five or six leagues off to purchase the earliest fruits and the most tempting sweetmeats preferred to palmer grapes or genoese preserves the chestnuts stolen from a neighbor's orchard or the dried apples in his loft when he could eat as well as the nuts and apples that grew in the garden one day when benedetto was about five or six our neighbor vasilo who according to the custom of the country never locked up his purse or his valuables for as your excellency knows there are no thieves in corsica complained that he had lost a louis out of his purse we thought he must have made a mistake in counting his money but he persisted in the accuracy of his statement one day benedetto who had been gone from the house since morning to our great anxiety did not return until late in the evening dragging a monkey after him which he said he had found chained to the foot of a tree for more than a month the mischievous child who knew not what to wish for had taken it into his head to have a monkey a boatman who had passed by rogliano and who had several of these animals whose tricks had greatly diverted him had doubtless suggested this idea to him monkeys are not found in our woods chained to trees said i confess how you obtained the animal benedetto maintained the truth of what he had said and accompanied it with details that did more honour to his imagination than to his veracity i became angry he began to laugh i threatened to strike him and he made two steps backwards you cannot beat me said he you have no right for you are not my father we never knew who had revealed this fatal secret which we had so carefully concealed from him however it was this answer in which the child's whole character revealed itself that almost terrified me and my arm fell without touching him the boy triumphed and his victory rendered him so audacious that all the money of assunta whose affection for him seemed to increase as he became more unworthy of it was spent in caprice she knew not how to contend against and follies she had not the courage to prevent when i was at rogliano everything went on properly 
but no sooner was my back turned than benedetto became master and everything went ill when he was only eleven he chose his companions from among the young men of eighteen or twenty the worst characters in bastia or indeed in corsica and they had already for some mischievous pranks been several times threatened with a prosecution i became alarmed as any prosecution might be attended with serious consequences i was compelled at this period to leave corsica on an important expedition i reflected for a long time and with the hope of averting some impending misfortune i resolved that benedetto should accompany me i hoped that the active and laborious life of a smuggler with the severe discipline on board would have a salutary effect on his character which was now well nigh if not quite corrupt i spoke to benedetto alone and proposed to him to accompany me endeavouring to tempt him by all the promises most likely to dazzle the imagination of a child of twelve he heard me patiently and when he had finished burst out laughing are you mad uncle he called me this name when he was in good humour do you think i am going to change the life i lead for your mode of existence my agreeable indolence for the hard and precarious toil you impose on yourself exposed to the bitter frost at night and the scorching heat by day compelled to conceal yourself and when you are perceived receive a volley of bullets all to earn a paltry sum why i have as much money as i want mother asanta always furnishes me when i ask for it you see that i should be a fool to accept your offer the arguments and his audacity perfectly stupefied me benedetto rejoined his associates and i saw him from a distance point me out to them as a fool sweet child murmured monte cristo oh had he been my own son replied bertuccio or even my nephew i would have brought him back to the right road for the knowledge that you are doing your duty gives you strength but the idea that i was striking a child whose father i had killed made it impossible for me to punish him i gave my sister who constantly defended the unfortunate boy good advice and as she confessed that she had several times missed money to a considerable amount i showed her a safe place in which to conceal our little treasure for the future my mind was already made up benedetto could read write and cipher perfectly for when the fit seized him he learned more in a day than others in a week my intention was to enter him as a clerk in some ship and without letting him know anything of my plan to convey him some morning on board by this means his future treatment would depend upon his own conduct i set off for france after having fixed upon the plan our cargo was to be landed in the gulf of lyon and this was a difficult thing to do because it was then the year eighteen twenty nine the most perfect tranquillity was restored and the vigilance of the custom-house officers was redoubled and their strictness was increased at this time in consequence of the fair at beaucaire our expedition made a favourable beginning we anchored our vessel which had a double hold where our goods were concealed amidst a number of other vessels that bordered the banks of the rhone from beaucaire to arles on our arrival we began to discharge our cargo in the night and to convey it into the town 
by the help of the innkeeper with whom we were connected whether success rendered us imprudent or whether we were betrayed i know not but one evening about five o'clock our little cabin boy came breathlessly to inform us that he had seen a detachment of custom-house officers advancing in our direction it was not their proximity that alarmed us for detachments were constantly patrolling along the banks of the rhone but the care according to the boy's account that they took to avoid being seen in an instant we were on the alert but it was too late our vessel was surrounded and amongst the custom-house officers i observed several gendarmes and as terrified at the sight of their uniforms as i was brave at the sight of any other i sprang into the hold opened a port and dropped into the river dived and only rose at intervals to breathe until i reached a ditch that had recently been made from the rhone to the canal that runs from beaucaire to aigues i was now safe for i could swim along the ditch without being seen and i reached the canal in safety i had designedly taken this direction i have already told your excellency of an innkeeper from nîmes who had set up a little tavern on the road from bellegarde to beaucaire yes said monte cristo i perfectly recollect him i think he was your colleague precisely answered bertuccio but he had seven or eight years before this period sold his establishment to a tailor at marseilles who having almost ruined himself in his old trade wished to make his fortune in another of course we made the same arrangements with the new landlord that we had with the old and it was of this man that i intended to ask shelter what was his name inquired the count who seemed to become somewhat interested in bertuccio's story gaspar caderousse he had married a woman from the village of carconte and whom we did not know by any other name than that of her village she was suffering from malarial fever and seemed dying by inches as for her husband he was a strapping fellow of forty or five and forty who had more than once in time of danger given ample proof of his presence of mind and courage and you say interrupted monte cristo that this took place towards the year eighteen twenty nine your excellency in what month june the beginning or the end the evening of the third ah said monte cristo the evening of the third of june eighteen twenty nine go on it was from caderousse that i intended demanding shelter and as we never entered by the door that opened on to the road i resolved not to break through the rule so climbing over the garden hedge i crept amongst the olive and wild fig trees and fearing that caderousse might have some guest i entered a kind of shed in which i had often passed the night and which was only separated from the inn by a partition in which holes had been made in order to enable us to watch an opportunity of announcing our presence my intention was if caderousse was alone to acquaint him with my presence finish the meal the custom-house officers had interrupted and profit by the threatened storm to return to the rhone and ascertain the state of our vessel and its crew i stepped into the shed and it was fortunate i did so for at that moment caderousse entered with a stranger i waited patiently 
not to overhear what they said but because i could do nothing else besides the same thing had occurred often before the man who was with caderousse was evidently a stranger to the south of france he was one of those merchants who came to sell jewelry at the beaucaire fair and who during the month the fair lasts and during which there is so great an influx of merchants and customers from all parts of europe often have dealings to the amount of one hundred thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand francs caderousse entered hastily then seeing that the room was as usual empty and only guarded by the dog he called to his wife hello carcante said he the worthy priest has not deceived us the diamond is real an exclamation of joy was heard and the staircase creaked beneath a feeble step what do you say asked his wife pale as a death i say that the diamond is real and that this gentleman one of the first jewelers of paris will give us fifty thousand francs for it only in order to satisfy himself that it really belongs to us he wishes you to relate to him as i have done already the miraculous manner in which the diamond came into our possession in the meantime please to sit down monsieur and i will fetch you some refreshment the jeweller examined attentively the interior of the inn and the apparent poverty of the persons who were about to sell him a diamond that seems to have come from the casket of a prince relate your story madame said he wishing no doubt to profit by the absence of the husband so that the latter could not influence the wife's story to see if the two recitals tallied oh returned she it was a gift from heaven my husband was a great friend in eighteen fourteen or eighteen fifteen of a sailor named edmond dante this poor fellow whom caderousse had forgotten had not forgotten him and at his death he bequeathed this diamond to him but how did you obtain it asked the jeweller had he not before he was imprisoned no monsieur but it appears that in prison he made the acquaintance of a rich englishman and as in prison he fell sick and dante took the same care of him as if he had been his brother the englishman when he was set free gave this stone to dante who less fortunate died and in his turn left it to us and charged the excellent abbe who was here this morning to deliver it the same story muttered the jeweller and improbable as it seemed at first it may be true there is only the price we are not agreed about how not agreed about said caderousse i thought we agreed for the price i asked that is replied the jeweller i offered forty thousand francs forty thousand cried la carconte we will not part with it for that sum the abbe told us it was worth fifty thousand without the setting what was the abbe's name asked the indefatigable questioner the abbe busoni said la carconte he was a foreigner an italian from the neighborhood of mantua i believe let me see this diamond again replied the jeweller the first time you are often mistaken as to the value of a stone caderousse took from his pocket a small case of black chagrin opened and gave it to the jeweller 
at the sight of the diamond which was as large as a hazelnut la carconte's eyes sparkled with cupidity and what did you think of this fine story eavesdropper said monte cristo did you credit it yes your excellency i did not look on caderousse as a bad man and i thought him incapable of committing a crime or even a theft that did more honour to your heart than to your experience monsieur bertuccio had you known this edmond dante of whom they spoke no your excellency i had never heard of him before and never but once afterwards and that was from the abbe busoni himself when i saw him in the prison at nimes go on the jeweller took the ring and drawing from his pocket a pair of steel pliers and a small set of copper scales he took the stone out of its setting and weighed it carefully i will give you forty-five thousand said he but not a sou more besides as that is the exact value of the stone i brought just that sum with me oh that's no matter replied caderousse i will go back with you to fetch the other five thousand francs no returned the jeweller giving back the diamond and the ring to caderousse no it is worth no more and i am sorry i offered so much for the stone has a flaw in it which i had not seen however i will not go back on my word and i will give forty-five thousand at least replace the diamond in the ring said la carconte sharply ah true replied the jeweller and he reset the stone no matter observed caderousse replacing the box in his pocket someone else will purchase it yes continued the jeweller but someone else will not be so easy as i am or content himself with the same story it is not natural that a man like you should possess such a diamond he will inform against you you will have to find the abbe busoni and the abbe who will give diamonds worth two thousand louis are rare the law would seize it and put you in prison if at the end of three or four months you are set at liberty the ring will be lost or a false stone worth three francs will be given to you instead of a diamond worth fifty thousand or perhaps fifty five thousand francs from which you must allow that one runs considerable risk in purchasing caderousse and his wife looked eagerly at each other no said caderousse we are not rich enough to lose five thousand francs as you please my dear sir said the jeweller i had however as you see brought you the money in bright coin and he drew from his pocket a handful of gold and held it sparkling before the dazzled eyes of the innkeeper and in the other hand he held a packet of banknotes there was evidently a severe struggle in the mind of caderousse it was plain that the small chagrin case which he turned over and over in his hand did not seem to him commensurate in value to the enormous sum which fascinated his gaze he turned towards his wife what do you think of this he asked in a low voice let him have it let him have it she said if he returns to beaucaire without the diamond he will inform against us and as he says who knows if we shall ever again see the abbe busoni in all probability we shall never see him well then so i will said caderousse 
so you may have the diamond for forty-five thousand francs but my wife wants a gold chain and i want a pair of silver buckles the jeweller drew from his pocket a long flat box which contained several samples of the articles demanded here he said i am very straightforward in my dealings take your choice the woman selected a gold chain worth about five louis and the husband a pair of buckles worth perhaps fifteen francs i hope you will not complain now said the jeweller the abbe told me it was worth fifty thousand francs muttered caderousse come give it to me what a strange fellow you are said the jeweller taking the diamond from his hand i give you forty five thousand francs that is two and a half thousand livres of income a fortune such as i wish i had myself and you are not satisfied and the five and forty thousand francs inquired caderousse in a hoarse voice where are they come let us see them here they are replied the jeweller and he counted out upon the table fifteen thousand francs in gold and thirty thousand francs in banknotes wait wait while i light the lamp said la carconte it is growing dark and there may be some mistake in fact night had come on during the conversation and with night the storm which had been threatening for the last half hour the thunder growled in the distance but it was apparently not heard by the jeweller caderousse or la carconte absorbed as they were all three with the demon of gain i myself felt a strange kind of fascination at the sight of all this gold and all these banknotes it seemed to me that i was in a dream and as it was always happening in a dream i felt myself riveted to the spot caderousse counted and again counted the gold and the notes then handed them to his wife who counted and counted them again in her turn during this time the jeweller made the diamond play and sparkle in the limelight and the gem threw out jets of light which made him unmindful of those which precursors of the storm began to play in at the windows well inquired the jeweller is the cash all right yes said caderousse give me the pocket-book la carconte and find a bag somewhere la carconte went to a cupboard and returned with an old leathern pocket-book and a bag from the former she took some greasy letters and put in their place the banknotes and from the bag took two or three crowns of six livres each which in all probability formed the entire fortune of the miserable couple there said caderousse and now although you have wronged us of perhaps ten thousand francs will you have your supper with us i invite you with good will thank you replied the jeweller it must be getting late and i must return to beaucaire my wife will be getting uneasy he drew out his watch and exclaimed morbleu nearly nine o'clock why i shall not get back to beaucaire before midnight good night my friends if the abbe boussonnet should by any accident return think of me in another week you will have left beaucaire remarked caderousse for the fair ends in a few days true but that makes no difference write to me at paris to monsieur Joan in the palais royal arcade pierre numero quarante-cinq 
I will make the journey on purpose to see him, if it is worth while. At this moment there was a tremendous clap of thunder, accompanied by a flash of lightning so vivid that it quite eclipsed the light of the lamp. "'See here!' exclaimed Caderousse. "'You cannot think of going out in such weather as this.' "'Oh, I am not afraid of thunder,' said the jeweller. "'And then there are robbers,' said La Carconte. "'The road is never very safe during fair time.' "'Oh, as to the robbers,' said Joanne, "'here is something for them.' And he drew from his pocket a pair of small pistols, loaded to the muzzle. "'Here,' said he, "'are dogs who bark and bite at the same time.' They are for the two first who shall have a longing for your diamond, friend Caderousse. Caderousse and his wife again interchanged a meaning look. It seemed as though they were both inspired at the same time, with some horrible thought. Well, then, a good journey to you, said Caderousse. Thanks, replied the jeweller. He then took his cane, which he had replaced against an old cupboard, and went out. At the moment when he opened the door, such a gust of wind came in that the lamp was nearly extinguished. "'Oh,' said he, "'this is a very nice weather, and two leagues to go in such a storm.' "'Remain,' said Caderousse. "'You can sleep here. Yes, do stay,' added La Carconte in a tremulous voice. "'We will take every care of you.' "'No, I must sleep at Beaucaire.' "'So, once more, good-night.' Caderousse followed him slowly to the threshold. "'I can see neither heaven nor earth,' said the jeweller, who was outside the door. "'Do I turn to the right or to the left hand?' "'To the right,' said Caderousse. "'You cannot go wrong. The road is bordered by trees on both sides.' "'Good. All right,' said a voice almost lost in the distance. "'Close the door.' said la carconte i do not like the open doors when it thunders particularly when there is money in the house eh answered caderousse double locking the door he came into the room went to the cupboard took out the bag and pocket-book and both began for the third time to count their gold and bank-notes i never saw such an expression of cupidity as the flickering lamp revealed in those two countenances the woman especially was hideous her usual feverish tremulousness was intensified her countenance had become livid and her eyes resembled burning coals why she inquired in a hoarse voice did you invite him to sleep here to-night why said caderousse with a shudder why that he might not have the trouble of returning to beaucaire ah responded the woman with an expression impossible to describe "'I thought it was for something else.' "'Woman, woman, why do you have such ideas?' cried Caderousse. "'Or if you have them, why don't you keep them to yourself?' "'Well,' said La Carconte, after a moment's pause, "'you are not a man.' "'What do you mean?' added Caderousse. "'If you had been a man, you would not have let him go from here.' "'Woman! Or else he should not have reached Beaucaire.' woman the road takes a turn he is obliged to follow it while alongside of the canal there is a shorter road woman you offend the good god there listen 
and at this moment there was a tremendous peal of thunder while the livid lightning illumined the room and the thunder rolling away in the distance seemed to withdraw unwillingly from the cursed abode merci said caderousse crossing himself at the same moment and in the midst of the terrifying silence which usually follows a clap of thunder they heard a knocking at the door caderousse and his wife started and looked aghast at each other who's there cried caderousse rising and drawing up in a heap the gold and notes scattered over the table and which he covered with his two hands it is i shouted a voice and who are you eh pardieu joanne the jeweller well and you said i offended the good god said la carconte with a hurried smile why the good god sends him back again caderousse sank pale and breathless into his chair la carconte on the contrary rose and going with a firm step toward the door opened it saying as she did so come in dear monsieur joanne ma foi said the jeweller drenched with rain i am not destined to return to beaucaire to-night the shortest follies are best my dear caderousse you offered me hospitality and i accept it and have returned to sleep beneath your friendly roof caderousse stammered out something while he wiped away the sweat that started to his brow la carconte double locked the door behind the jeweller end of chapter 44《Chapter 45 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 45 The Reign of Blood. As the jeweller returned to the apartment, he cast around him a scrutinizing glance, but there was nothing to excite suspicion, if it did not exist, or to confirm it if it were already awakened. Caderousse's hands still grasped the gold and banknotes, and la carconte called up her sweetest smiles while welcoming the reappearance of their guest well well said the jeweller you seem my good friends to have had some fears respecting the accuracy of your money by counting it over so carefully directly i was gone oh no answered caderousse that was not my reason i can assure you but the circumstance by which we have become possessed of this wealth are so unexpected as to make us scarcely credit our good fortune and it is only by placing the actual proof of our riches before our eyes that we can persuade ourselves that the whole affair is not a dream the jeweller smiled have you any other guests in your house inquired he nobody but ourselves replied caderousse the fact is uh, we do not lodge travellers indeed our tavern is so near the town that nobody would think of stopping here then i am afraid i shall very much inconvenience you inconvenience us not at all my dear sir said la carconte in her most gracious manner not at all i assure you but where will you manage to stow me 
in the chamber overhead surely that is where you yourself sleep never mind about that we have a second bed in the adjoining room caderousse stared at his wife with much astonishment the jeweller meanwhile was humming a song as he stood warming his back at the fire la carconte had kindled to dry the wet garments of her guest and this done she next occupied herself in arranging his supper by spreading a napkin at the end of the table and placing on it the slender remains of their dinner to which she added three or four fresh laid eggs caderousse had once more parted with his treasure the banknotes were replaced in the pocket-book the gold put back into the bag and the whole carefully locked in the cupboard he then began pacing the room with a pensive and gloomy air glancing from time to time at the jeweller who stood reeking with the stream from his wet clothes and merely changing his place on the warm hearth to enable the whole of his garments to be dried there said la carconte as she placed a bottle of wine on the table supper is ready whenever you are and you asked joanne i don't want any supper said caderousse we dine so very late hastily interposed la carconte then it seems i am about to eat alone remarked the jeweller oh we shall have the pleasure of waiting upon you answered la carconte with an eager attention she was not accustomed to manifest even to guests who paid for what they took from time to time caderousse darted on his wife keen searching glances but rapid as the lightning flash the storm still continued there there said la carconte do you hear that upon my word you did well to come back nevertheless replied the jeweller if by the time i have finished my supper the tempest has at all abated i shall make another start it's the mistral said caderousse and it will be sure to last till to-morrow morning he sighed heavily well said the jeweller as he placed himself at table all i can say is so much the worse for those who are abroad yes chimed in la carconte they will have a wretched night of it the jeweller began eating his supper and the woman who was ordinarily so querulous and indifferent to all who approached her was suddenly transformed into the most smiling and attentive hostess had the unhappy man on whom she lavished her assiduities been previously acquainted with her so sudden an alteration might well have excited suspicion in his mind or at least have greatly astonished him caderousse meanwhile continued to pace the room in gloomy silence sedulously avoiding the sight of his guest but as soon as the stranger had completed his repast the agitated innkeeper went eagerly to the door and opened it i believe the storm is over said he but as if to contradict his statement at that instant a violent clap of thunder seemed to shake the house to the very foundation while a sudden gust of wind mingled with rain extinguished the lamp he held in his hand trembling and awestruck caderousse hastily shut the door and returned to his guest while la carconte lighted a candle by the smouldering ashes that glimmered on the hearth you must be tired said she to the jeweller 
i have spread a pair of white sheets on your bed go up when you are ready and sleep well joanne stayed for a while to see whether the storm seemed to abate in its fury but a brief space of time sufficed to assure him that instead of diminishing the violence of the rain and thunder momentarily increased resigning himself therefore to what seemed inevitable he bade his host good-night and mounted the stairs he passed over my head and i heard the flooring creak beneath his footsteps the quick eager glance of la carconte followed him as he ascended while caderousse on the contrary turned his back and seemed most anxiously to avoid even glancing at him all these circumstances did not strike me as painfully at the time as they have since done in fact all that had happened with the exception of the story of the diamond which certainly did wear an air of improbability appeared natural enough and called for neither apprehension nor mistrust but worn out as i was with fatigue and fully purposing to proceed onwards directly the tempest abated i determined to obtain a few hours sleep overhead i could accurately distinguish every movement of the jeweller who after making the best arrangements in his power for passing a comfortable night threw himself on his bed and i could hear it creak and groan beneath his weight insensibly my eyelids grew heavy deep sleep stole over me and having no suspicion of anything wrong i sought not to shake it off i looked into the kitchen once more and saw caderousse sitting by the side of a long table upon one of the low wooden stools which in country places are frequently used instead of chairs his back was turned towards me so that i could not see the expression of his countenance neither should i have been able to do so had he been placed differently as his head was buried between his two hands la carconte continued to gaze on him for some time then shrugging her shoulders she took her seat immediately opposite to him at this moment the expiring embers threw up a fresh flame from the kindling of a piece of wood that lay near and a bright light flashed over the room la carconte still kept her eyes fixed on her husband but as he made no sign of changing his position she extended her hard bony hand and touched him on the forehead caderousse shuddered the woman's lips seemed to move as though she were talking but because she merely spoke in an undertone or my senses were dulled by sleep i did not catch a word she uttered confused sights and sounds seemed to float before me and gradually i fell into a deep heavy slumber how long i had been in this unconscious state i know not when i was suddenly aroused by the report of a pistol followed by a fearful cry weak and tottering footsteps resounded across the chamber above me and the next instant a dull heavy weight seemed to fall powerless on the staircase i had not yet fully recovered consciousness when again i heard groans mingled with half-stifled cries as if from persons engaged in a deadly struggle a cry more prolonged than the others and ending in a series of groans effectually roused me from my drowsy lethargy hastily raising myself in one arm i looked around 
but all was dark and it seemed to me as if the rain must have penetrated through the flooring of the room above for some kind of moisture appeared to fall drop by drop upon my forehead and when i passed my hand across my brow i felt that it was wet and clammy to the fearful noises that had awakened me had succeeded the most perfect silence unbroken save by the footsteps of a man walking about in the chamber above the staircase creaked he descended into the room below approached the fire and lit a candle the man was Caderousse. he was pale and his shirt was all bloody having obtained the light he hurried upstairs again and once more i heard his rapid and uneasy footsteps a moment later he came down again holding in his hand the small chagrin case which he opened to assure himself it contained the diamond seemed to hesitate as to which pocket he should put it in then as if dissatisfied with the security of either pocket he deposited it in his red handkerchief which he carefully rolled around his head after this he took from the cupboard the banknotes and gold he had put there thrust the one into the pocket of his trousers and the other into that of his waistcoat hastily tied up a small bundle of linen and rushing towards the door disappeared in the darkness of the night then all became clear and manifest to me and i reproached myself with what had happened as though i myself had done the guilty deed i fancied that i still heard faint moans and imagining that the unfortunate jeweller might not be quite dead i determined to go to his relief by way of atoning in some slight degree not for the crime i had committed but for that which i had not endeavoured to prevent for this purpose i applied all the strength i possessed to force an entrance from the cramped spot in which i lay to the adjoining room the poorly fastened boards which alone divided me from it yielded to my efforts and i found myself in the house hastily snatching up the lighted candle i hurried to the staircase about midway a body was lying quite across the stairs it was that of la carconte the pistol i had heard had doubtless been fired at her the shot had frightfully lacerated her throat leaving two gaping wounds from which as well as the mouth the blood was pouring in floods she was stone dead i strode past her and ascended to the sleeping chamber which presented an appearance of the wildest disorder the furniture had been knocked over in the deadly struggle that had taken place there and the sheets to which the unfortunate jeweller had doubtless clung were dragged across the room the murdered man lay on the floor his head leaning against the wall and about him was a pool of blood which poured forth from three large wounds in his breast there was a fourth gash in which a long table knife was plunged up to the handle i stumbled over some object i stooped to examine it was the second pistol which had not gone off probably from the powder being wet i approached the jeweller who was not quite dead and at the sound of my footsteps and the creaking of the floor he opened his eyes fixed them on me with an anxious and inquiring gaze 
moved his lips as though trying to speak then overcome by the effort fell back and expired this appalling sight almost bereft me of my senses and finding that i could no longer be of service to any one in the house my only desire was to fly i rushed towards the staircase clutching my hair and uttering a groan of horror upon reaching the room below i found five or six custom house officers and two or three gendarmes all heavily armed they threw themselves upon me i made no resistance i was no longer master of my senses when i strove to speak a few inarticulate sounds alone escaped my lips as i noticed the significant manner in which the whole party pointed to my blood-stained garments i involuntarily surveyed myself and then i discovered that the thick warm drops that had so bedewed me as i lay beneath the staircase must have been the blood of la carconte i pointed to the spot where i had concealed myself what does he mean asked a gendarme one of the officers went to the place i directed he means replied the man upon his return that he got in that way and he showed me the hole i had made when i broke through then i saw that they took me for the assassin i recovered force and energy enough to free myself from the hands of those who held me while i managed to stammer forth i did not do it indeed indeed i did not a couple of gendarmes held the muzzles of their carbines against my breast stir but a step said they and you are a dead man why should you threaten me with death cried i when i have already declared my innocence tush tush cried the men keep your innocent stories to tell the judge at nîmes meanwhile come along with us and the best advice we can give you to do is unresistingly alas resistance was far from my thoughts i was utterly overpowered by surprise and terror and without a word i suffered myself to be handcuffed and tied to a horse's tail and thus they took me to nîmes i had been tracked by our customs officer who had lost sight of me near the tavern feeling certain that i intended to pass the night there he had returned to summon his comrades who just arrived in time to hear the report of the pistol and to take me in the midst of such circumstantial proofs of my guilt as rendered all hopes of proving my innocence utterly futile one only chance was left me that of beseeching the magistrate before whom i was taken to cause every inquiry to be made for the abbe busoni who had stopped at the inn of the pont du garde on that morning if caderousse had invented the story relative to the diamond and there existed no such persons as the abbe busoni then indeed i was lost past redemption or at least my life hung upon the feeble chance of caderousse himself being apprehended and confessing the whole truth two months have passed away in hopeless expectation on my part while i must do the magistrate the justice to say that he used every means to obtain information of the person i declared could exculpate me if he would caderousse still evaded all pursuit 
and i had resigned myself to what seemed my inevitable fate my trial was to come on at the approaching assizes when on the eighth of september that is to say precisely three months and five days after the events which had perilled my life the abbe busoni whom i never ventured to believe i should see presented himself at the prison doors saying he understood one of the prisoners wished to speak to him he added that having learned at marseilles the particulars of my imprisonment he hastened to comply with my desire you may easily imagine with what eagerness i welcomed him and how minutely i related the whole of what i had seen and heard i felt some degree of nervousness as i entered upon the history of the diamond but to my inexpressible astonishment he confirmed it in every particular and to my equal surprise he seemed to place entire belief in all i said and then it was that won by his mild charity seeing that he was acquainted with all the habits and customs of my own country and considering also that pardon for the only crime of which i was really guilty might come with a double power from lips so benevolent and kind i besought him to receive my confession under the seal of which i recounted the auteuil affair in all its details as well as every other transaction of my life that which i had done by the impulse of my best feelings produced the same effect as though it had been the result of calculation my voluntary confession of the assassination at auteuil proved to him that i had not committed that of which i stood accused when he quitted me he bade me be of good courage and to rely upon his doing all in his power to convince my judges of my innocence i had speedy proofs that the excellent abbe was engaged in my behalf for the rigours of my imprisonment were alleviated by many trifling though acceptable indulgences and i was told that my trial was to be postponed to the assizes following those now being held in the interests it pleased providence to cause the apprehension of caderousse who was discovered in some distant country and brought back to france where he made a full confession refusing to make the fact of his wife's having suggested and arranged the murder any excuse for his own guilt the wretched man was sentenced to the galleys for life and i was immediately set at liberty and then it was i presume said monte cristo that you came to me as the bearer of a letter from the abbe busoni it was your excellency the benevolent abbe took an evident interest in all that concerned me your mode of life as a smuggler said he to me one day will be the ruin of you if you get out don't take it up again but how inquired i am i to maintain myself and my poor sister a person whose confessor i am replied he and who entertains a high regard for me applied to me a short time since to procure him a confidential servant would you like such a post if so i will give you a letter of introduction to him oh father i exclaimed 
you are very good but you must swear solemnly that i shall never have reason to repent of my recommendation i extended my hand and was about to pledge myself by any promise he would dictate but he stopped me it is unnecessary for you to bind yourself by any vow said he i know and admire the corsican nature too well to fear you here take this continued he after rapidly writing the few lines i brought them to your excellency and upon receipt of which you deigned to receive me into your service and proudly i ask whether your excellency has ever had cause to repent having done so no replied the count i take pleasure in saying that you have served me faithfully bertuccio but you might have shown more confidence in me i your excellency yes you how comes it that having both a sister and an adopted son you have never spoken to me of either alas i have still to recount the most distressing period of my life anxious as you may suppose i was to behold and comfort my dear sister i lost no time in hastening to corsica but when i arrived at rogliano i found a house of mourning the consequences of a scene so horrible that the neighbors remember and speak of it to this day acting by my advice my poor sister had refused to comply with the unreasonable demands of benedetto who was continually tormenting her for money as long as he believed there was a sou left in her possession one morning that he demanded money threatening her with the severest consequences if she did not supply him with what he desired he disappeared and remained away all day leaving the kind-hearted assunta who loved him as if he were her own child to weep over his conduct and bewail his absence evening came and still with all the patient solicitude of a mother she watched for his return as the eleventh hour struck he entered with a swaggering air attended by two of the most dissolute and reckless of his boon companions she stretched out her arms to him but they seized hold of her and one of the three none other than the accursed benedetto exclaimed put her to torture and she'll soon tell us where her money is it unfortunately happened that our neighbor vasilio was at bastilla leaving no person in his house but his wife no human creature beside could bear or see anything that took place within our dwelling two held poor assunta who unable to conceive that any harm was intended to her smiled in the face of those who were soon to become her executioners the third proceeded to barricade the doors and windows then returned and the three united in stifling the cries of terror incited by the sight of these preparations and then dragged assunta feet foremost towards the brazier expecting to wring from her an avowal of where her supposed treasure was secreted in the struggle her clothes caught fire and they were obliged to let go their hold in order to preserve themselves from sharing the same fate covered with flames assunta rushed wildly to the door but it was fastened 
she flew to the windows but they were also secured then the neighbors heard frightful shrieks it was asunta calling for help the cries died away in groans and the next morning as soon as vasilio's wife could muster up courage to venture abroad she caused the door of our dwelling to be opened by the public authorities when asunta although dreadfully burnt was found still breathing every drawer and closet in the house had been forced open and the money stolen benedetto never again appeared at rogliano neither have i since that day either seen or heard anything concerning him it was subsequently to these dreadful events that i waited on your excellency to whom it would have been folly to have mentioned benedetto since all trace of him seemed entirely lost or of my sister since she was dead and in what light did you view the occurrence inquired monte cristo as a punishment for the crime i had committed answered bertuccio oh those villefort are an accursed race truly they are murmured the count in a lugubrious tone and now resumed bertuccio your excellency may perhaps be able to comprehend that this place which i revisit for the first time this garden the actual scene of my crime must have given rise to reflection of no very agreeable nature and produced that gloom and depression of spirits which excited the notice of your excellency who was pleased to express a desire to know the cause at this instant a shudder passes over me as i reflect that possibly i am now standing on the very grave in which lies monsieur de villefort by whose hand the ground was dug to receive the corpse of his child everything is possible said monte cristo rising from the bench on which he had been sitting even he added in an inaudible voice even that the procureur be not dead the abbe busoni did right to send you to me he went on in his ordinary tone and you have done well in relating to me the whole of your history as it will prevent my forming any erroneous opinions concerning you in future as for that benedetto who so grossly belied his name have you never made any effort to trace out whether he has gone or what has become of him no far from wishing to learn whither he has betaken himself i should shun the possibility of meeting him as i would a wild beast thank god i never have heard his name mentioned by any person and i hope and believe he is dead do not think so bertuccio replied the count for the wicked are not so easily disposed of for god seems to have them under his special watch-care to make of them instruments of his vengeance so be it responded bertuccio all i ask of heaven is that i may never see him again and now your excellency he added bowing his head you know everything you are my judge on earth as the almighty is in heaven have you for me no words of consolation my good friend i can only repeat the words addressed to you by the abbe busoni villefort merited punishment for what he had done to you and perhaps to others 
Benedetto, if still living, will become the instrument of divine retribution in some way or other, and then be duly punished in his turn. As far as yourself are concerned, I see but one point in which you are really guilty. Ask yourself wherefore, after rescuing the infant from its living grave, you did not restore it to its mother. There was the crime, Bertuccio. That was where you became really culpable. True, Excellency, that was the crime, the real crime, for in that I acted like a coward. My first duty, directly I had succeeded in recalling the babe to life, was to restore it to its mother. But in order to do so I must have made close and careful inquiry, which would in all probability have led to my own apprehension, and I clung to life, partly on my sister's account, and partly for the feeling of pride inborn in our hearts, of desiring to come off untouched and victorious in the execution of our vengeance. Perhaps, too, the natural and instinctive love of life made me wish to avoid endangering my own, and then again I am not as brave and courageous as was my poor brother. Bertuccio hid his face in his hands as he uttered these words, while Monte Cristo fixed on him a look of inscrutable meaning. After a brief silence, rendered still more solemn by the time and place, the Count said in a tone of melancholy, wholly unlike his usual manner, "'In order to bring this conversation to a fitting termination,' the last we shall ever hold upon this subject. I will repeat to you some words I have heard from the lips of the Abbe Busoni. For all evils there are two remedies, time and silence. And now leave me, Monsieur Bertuccio, to walk alone here in the garden. The very circumstances which inflict on you as a principle in the tragic scene enacted here such painful emotions are to me on the contrary a source of something like contentment and serve but to enhance the value of this dwelling in my estimation the chief beauty of trees consists in the deep shadow of their umbrageous boughs while fancy pictures a moving multitude of shapes and forms flitting and passing beneath that shade here I have a garden laid out in such a way as to afford the fullest scope for the imagination, and furnished with thickly grown trees, beneath whose leafy screen a visionary like myself may conjure up phantoms at will. This to me, who expected but to find a blank enclosure surrounded by a straight wall, is, I assure you, a most agreeable surprise." I have no fear of ghosts, and I have never heard it said that so much harm had been done by the dead during six thousand years as is wrought by the living in a single day. Retire within, Bertuccio, and tranquilize your mind. Should your confessor be less indulgent to you in your dying moments than you found the Abbe Busoni, send for me, if I am still on earth." and I will soothe your ears with words that will effectually calm and soothe your parting soul, ere it goes forth to traverse the ocean called eternity. 
Bertuccio bowed respectfully and turned away, sighing heavily. Monte Cristo, left alone, took three or four steps onwards and murmured, "'Here, beneath this plain tree, must have been where the infant's grave was dug. There is a little door opening into the garden. At this corner is the private staircase communicating with the sleeping apartment.' there will be no necessity for me to make a note of these particulars for there before my eyes beneath my feet all around me i have the plan sketched with all the living reality of truth after making the tour of the garden a second time the count re-entered his carriage while bertuccio who perceived the thoughtful expression of his master's features took his seat beside the driver without uttering a word the carriage proceeded rapidly towards paris that same evening upon reaching his abode in the champs elysees the count of monte cristo went over the whole building with the air of one long acquainted with each nook or corner nor although preceding the party did he once mistake one door for another or commit the smallest error when choosing any particular corridor or staircase to conduct him to a place or suite of rooms he desired to visit ali was his principal attendant during this nocturnal survey having given various orders to bertuccio relative to the improvements and alterations he decided to make in the house the count drawing out his watch said to the attentive nubian it is half past eleven o'clock haiti will soon be here have the french attendants been summoned to await her calming ali extended his hands towards the apartments destined for the fair greek which was so effectually concealed by means of a tapestried entrance that it would have puzzled the most curious to have divined their existence ali having pointed to the apartments held up three fingers of his right hand and then placing it beneath his head shut his eyes and feigned to sleep i understand said monte cristo well acquainted with ali's pantomime you mean to tell me that three female attendants await their new mistress in her sleeping chamber ali with considerable animation made a sign in the affirmative madame will be tired to-night continued monte cristo and will no doubt wish to rest desire the french attendants not to weary her with questions but merely to pay their respectful duty and retire you will also see that the greek servants hold no communication with those of this country he bowed just at that moment voices were heard hailing the concierge the gate opened a carriage rolled down the avenue and stopped at the steps the count hastily descended presented himself at the already opened carriage door and held out his hand to a young woman completely enveloped in a green silk mantle heavily embroidered with gold she raised the hand extended toward her to her lips and kissed it with a mixture of love and respect some few words passed between them in that sonorous language in which homer makes his gods converse the young woman spoke with an expression of deep tenderness while the count replied with an air of gentle gravity preceded by ali who carried a rose-colored flambeau in his hand the newcomer who was no other than the lovely greek who had been monte cristo's companion in italy was conducted to her apartments while the count retired to the pavilion reserved for himself 
in another hour every light in the house was extinguished and it might have been thought that all its inmates slept end of chapter 45「Unlimited Credit」About two o'clock the following day, a calash, drawn by a pair of magnificent English horses, stopped at the door of Monte Cristo, and a person, dressed in a blue coat with buttons of a similar colour, a white waistcoat, over which was displayed a massive gold chain, brown trousers and a quantity of black hair descending so low over his eyebrows as to leave it doubtful whether it were not artificial so little did its jetty glossiness assimilate with the deep wrinkles stamped on his features a person in a word who although evidently past fifty desired to be taken for not more than forty bent forwards from the carriage door on the panels of which were emblazoned the armorial bearings of a baron and directed his groom to inquire at the porter's lodge whether the count of monte cristo resided there and if he were within while waiting the occupant of the carriage surveyed the house the garden as far as he could distinguish it and the livery of servants who passed to and fro with an attention so close as to be somewhat impertinent his glance was keen but showed cunning rather than intelligence his lips were straight and so thin that as they closed they were drawn in over the teeth his cheekbones were broad and projecting a never-failing proof of audacity and craftiness while the flatness of his forehead and the enlargement of the back of his skull which rose much higher than his large and coarsely shaped ears combined to form a physiognomy anything but prepossessing save in the eyes of such as considered that the owner of so splendid an equipage must needs be all that was admirable and enviable more especially when they gazed on the enormous diamond that glittered in his shirt and the red ribbon that depended from his buttonhole the groom in obedience to his orders tapped at the window of the porter's lodge saying pray does not the count of monte cristo live here his excellency does reside here replied the concierge but added he glancing an inquiring look at ali ali returned a sign in the negative but what asked the groom his excellency does not receive visitors to-day then here is my master's card the baron d'anglars you will take it to the count and say that although in haste to attend the chamber my master came out of his way to have the honour of calling upon him i never speak to his excellency replied the concierge the valet de chambre will carry your message the groom returned to the carriage well asked danglars the man somewhat crestfallen by the rebuke he had received repeated what the concierge had said bless me murmured baron danglars this must surely be a prince instead of a count by their styling him excellency and only venturing to address him by the medium of his valet de chambre however it does not signify he has a letter of credit on me so i must see him when he requires his money then throwing himself back in his carriage danglars called out to his coachman in a voice that might be heard across the road 
to the chamber of deputies apprised in time of the visit paid him monte cristo had from behind the blinds of his pavilion as minutely observed the baron by means of an excellent lorgnette as danglars himself had scrutinized the house garden and servants that fellow has a decidedly bad countenance said the count in a tone of disgust as he shut up his glass into its ivory case how comes it that all do not retreat in aversion at sight of that flat receding serpent-like forehead round vulture-shaped head and sharp hooked nose like the beak of a buzzard ali cried he striking at the same time on the brazen gong ali appeared summon bertuccio said the count almost immediately bertuccio entered the apartment did your excellency desire to see me inquired he i did replied the count you no doubt observed the horses standing a few minutes since at the door certainly your excellency i noticed them for their remarkable beauty then how comes it said monte cristo with a frown that when i desired you to purchase for me the finest pair of horses to be found in paris there is another pair fully as fine as mine not in my stables at the look of displeasure added to the angry tone in which the count spoke ali turned pale and held down his head it is not your fault my good ali said the count in the arabic language and with a gentleness none would have thought him capable of showing either in the voice or face it is not your fault you do not understand the points of english horses the countenance of poor ali recovered its serenity permit me to assure your excellency said bertuccio that the horses you speak of were not to be sold when i purchased yours monte cristo shrugged his shoulders it seems sir steward said he that you have not yet to learn that all things are to be sold to such as care to pay the price his excellency is not perhaps aware that monsieur danglars gave sixteen thousand francs for his horses very well then offer him double that sum a banker never loses an opportunity of doubling his capital is your excellency really in earnest inquired the steward monte cristo regarded the person who durst presume to doubt his words with a look of one equally surprised and displeased i have to pay a visit this evening replied he i desire that these horses with completely new harness may be at the door with my carriage bertuccio bowed and was about to retire but when he reached the door he paused and then said at what o'clock does your excellency wish the carriage and the horses to be ready at five o'clock replied the count i beg your excellency's pardon interposed the steward in a deprecating manner for venturing to observe that it is already two o'clock i am perfectly aware of that fact answered monte cristo calmly then turning towards ali he said let all horses in my stables be led before the windows of your young lady that she may select those she prefers for her carriage request her also to oblige me by saying whether it is her pleasure to dine with me if so let dinner be served in her apartment now leave me and desire my valet de chambre to come hither scarcely had ali disappeared when the valet entered the chamber monsieur baptistine said the count 
you have been in my service one year the time i generally give myself to judge of the merits or demerits of those about me you suit me very well baptistine bowed low it only remains for me to know whether i also suit you oh your excellency exclaimed baptistine eagerly listen if you please till i have finished speaking replied monte cristo you receive a one thousand five hundred francs per annum for your services here more than many a brave subaltern who continually risks his life for his country obtains you live in a manner far superior to many clerks who work ten times harder than you do for their money then though yourself a servant you have other servants to wait upon you take care of your clothes and see that your linen is duly prepared for you again you make a profit upon each article you purchase for my toilet amounting in the course of a year to a sum equaling your wages nay indeed your excellency i am not condemning you for this monsieur baptistine but left your profits end here it would be long indeed ere you would find so lucrative a post as that you have now the good fortune to fill i neither ill-use nor ill-treat my servants by word or action an error i readily forgive but wilful negligence or forgetfulness never my commands are ordinarily short clear and precise and i would rather be obliged to repeat my words twice or even three times than they should be misunderstood i am rich enough to know whatever i desire to know and i can promise you i am not wanting in curiosity if then i should learn that you had taken upon yourself to speak of me to any one favourably or unfavourably to comment on my actions or watch my conduct that very instant you would quit my service you may now retire i never caution my servants a second time remember that baptistine bowed and was proceeding toward the door i forgot to mention to you said the count that i lay yearly aside a certain sum for each servant in my establishment those who i am compelled to dismiss lose as a matter of course all participation in this money while their portion goes to the fund accumulating for those domestics who remain with me and among whom it will be divided at my death you have been in my service a year your fund has already begun to accumulate let it continue to do so this address delivered in the presence of ali who not understanding one word of the language in which it was spoken stood wholly unmoved produced an effect on monsieur baptistine only to be conceived by such as have occasion to study the character and disposition of french domestics i assure your excellency said he that at least it shall be my study to merit your approbation in all things and i will take monsieur ali as my model by no means replied the count in the most frigid tones ali has many faults mixed with most excellent qualities he cannot possibly serve you as a pattern for your conduct not being as you are a paid servant but a mere slave a dog who should he fail in his duty toward me i should not discharge from my service but kill baptistine opened his eyes with astonishment you seem incredulous said monte cristo 
who repeated to ali in the arabic language what he had just been saying to baptistine in french the nubian smiled assentingly to his master's words then kneeling on one knee respectfully kissed the hand of the count this corroboration of the lesson he had just received put the finishing stroke to the wonder and stupefaction of monsieur baptistine the count then motioned the valet de chambre to retire and to ali to follow to his study where they conversed long and earnestly together as the hand of the clock pointed to five the count struck thrice upon his gong when ali was wanted one stroke was given two summoned baptistine and three bertuccio the steward entered my horses said monte cristo they are at the door harnessed to the carriage as your excellency desired does your excellency wish me to accompany him no the coachman ali and baptistine will go the count descended to the door of his mansion and beheld his carriage drawn by the very pair of horses he had so much admired in the morning as the property of danglars as he passed them he said they are extremely handsome certainly and you have done well to purchase them although you were somewhat remiss not to have procured them sooner indeed your excellency i had very considerable difficulty in obtaining them and as it is they have cost an enormous price does the sum you gave for them make the animals less beautiful inquired the count shrugging his shoulders nay if your excellency is satisfied it is all that i would wish whither does your excellency desire to be driven to the residence of baron d'anglars rue de la chaussee d'antin this conversation had passed as they stood upon the terrace from which a flight of stone steps led to the carriage drive as bertuccio with a respectful bow was moving away the count called him back i have another commission for you monsieur bertuccio said he i am desirous of having an estate by the seaside in normandy for instance between havre and boulogne you see i gave you a wide range it will be absolutely necessary that the place you may select have a small harbour creek or bay into which my corvette can enter and remain at anchor she draws only fifteen feet she must be kept in constant readiness to sail immediately i think proper to give the signal make the requisite inquiries for a place of this description and when you have met with an eligible spot visit it and if it possess the advantage desired purchase it at once in your own name the corvette must now i think be on her way to fecamp must she not certainly your excellency i saw her put to sea the same evening we quitted marseilles and the yacht was ordered to remain at martigues tis well i wish you to write from time to time to the captains in charge of the two vessels so as to keep them on the alert and the steamboat she is at chalons yes the same orders for her as for the two sailing vessels very good when you have purchased the estate i desire i want constant relays of horses at ten leagues apart along this northern and southern road your excellency may depend upon me the count made a gesture of satisfaction descended the terrace steps and sprang into his carriage which was whirled along swiftly to the banker's house danglars was engaged at that moment presiding over a railroad committee but the meeting was nearly concluded when the name of his visitor was announced as the count's title sounded on his ear he rose and addressing his colleagues 
who were members of one or other of the chamber, he said, "'Gentlemen, pardon me for leaving you so abruptly, but a most ridiculous circumstance has occurred, which is this. Thompson and French, the, the Roman bankers, have sent to me a certain person calling himself the Count of Monte Cristo, and have given him an unlimited credit with me. I confess this is the drollest thing I have ever met within course of my extensive foreign transactions, and you may readily suppose it has greatly roused my curiosity. I took the trouble this morning to call on the pretended Count. If he were a real Count, he wouldn't be so rich. But would you believe it? He was not receiving. So the master of Monte Cristo gives himself airs befitting a great millionaire or a capricious beauty. I made inquiries, and found that the house in the Champs-Élysées is his own property, and certainly it was very decently kept up, but, pursued Danglars with one of his sinister smiles, an order for unlimited credit calls for something like caution on the part of the banker to whom that order is given. I am very anxious to see this man. I suspect a hoax is intended, but the instigators of it little knew whom they had to deal with. They laugh best. Who laugh last? Having delivered himself of this pompous address, uttered with a degree of energy that left the baron almost out of breath, he bowed to the assembled party and withdrew to his drawing-room, whose sumptuous furnishings of white and gold had caused a great sensation in the Chaussée d'Antin. It was to this apartment he had desired his guest to be shown, with the purpose of overwhelming him at the sight of so much luxury. He found the Count standing before some copies of Albano and Fattore that had been passed off to the banker as originals, but which mere copies as they were, seemed to feel their degradation in being brought into juxtaposition with the gaudy colours that covered the ceiling. The Count turned round as he heard the entrance of Donglars into the room. With a slight inclination of the head, Donglars signed to the Count to be seated, pointing significantly to a gilded armchair covered with white satin embroidered with gold. The Count sat down. "'I have the honour, I presume, of addressing a Monsieur de Monte Cristo.' The Count bowed. "'And I of speaking to Baron Donglars.' "'Chevalier of the Legion of Honour and a member of the Chamber of Deputies.' Monte Cristo repeated all the titles he had read on the Baron's card. Danglars felt the irony and compressed his lips. "'You will, I trust, excuse me, monsieur, for not calling you by your title when I first addressed you,' he said. "'But you are aware that we are living under a popular form of government, and—' that I myself a representative of the liberties of the people. "'So much so,' replied Monte Cristo, "'that while you call yourself Baron, you are not willing to call anybody else Count.' "'Upon my word, monsieur,' said Danglars with affected carelessness, "'I attach no sort of value to such empty distinctions, but the fact is I was made Baron, and also Chevalier of the Legion of Honour, in return for services rendered, but... But you have discarded your titles after the example set you by Messrs. de Montmorency and Lafayette. That was a noble example to follow, monsieur. Why, replied Danglars, not entirely so, 
with the servants you understand i see to your domestics you are my lord the journalists style you monsieur while your constituents call you citizen these are distinctions very suitable under a constitutional government i understand perfectly again danglars bit his lips he saw that he was no match for monte cristo in an argument of this sort and he therefore hastened to turn to subjects more congenial permit me to inform you count said he bowing that i have received a letter of advice from thompson and french of rome i am glad to hear it baron for i must claim the privilege of addressing you after the manner of your servants i have acquired the bad habit of calling persons by their titles from living in a country where barons are still barons by right of birth but as regards the letter of advice i am charmed to find that it has reached you that will spare me the troublesome and disagreeable task of coming to you for money myself you have received a regular letter of advice yes said danglars but i confess i didn't quite comprehend its meaning indeed and for that reason i did myself the honour of calling upon you in order to beg for an explanation go on monsieur here i am ready to give you any explanation you desire why said danglars in the letter i believe i have it about me here he felt in his breast-pocket yes here it is well this letter gives the count of monte cristo unlimited credit on our house well baron what is there difficult to understand about that merely the term unlimited nothing else certainly is not that word known in france the people who wrote are anglo-germans you know oh as for the composition of the letter there is nothing to be said but as regards the competency of the document i certainly have doubts is it possible asked the count assuming all air and tone of the utmost simplicity and candour is it possible that thompson and french are not looked upon as safe and solvent bankers pray tell me what you think baron for i feel uneasy i can assure you having some considerable property in their hands thompson and french are perfectly solvent replied danglars with an almost mocking smile but the word unlimited in financial affairs is so extremely vague is in fact unlimited said monte cristo precisely what i was about to say cried danglars now what is vague is doubtful and it was a wise man who said when in doubt keep out meaning to say rejoined monte cristo that however thompson and french may be inclined to commit acts of imprudence and folly the baron danglars is not disposed to follow their example not at all plainly enough messrs thompson and french set no bounds to their engagements while those of monsieur danglars have their limits he is a wise man according to his own showing monsieur replied the banker drawing himself up with a haughty air the extent of my resources has never yet been questioned it seems then reserved for me said monte cristo coldly to be the first to do so by what right sir by right of the objections you have raised and the explanations you have demanded 
which certainly must have some motive. Once more, Danglars bit his lips. It was the second time he had been worsted, and this time on his own ground. His forced politeness sat awkwardly upon him, and approached almost to impertinence. Monte Cristo, on the contrary, preserved a graceful suavity of demeanour, aided by a certain degree of simplicity he could assume at pleasure, and thus possessed the advantage. "'Well, sir,' resumed Danglars, after a brief silence, "'I will endeavour to make myself understood by requesting you to inform me for what sum you propose to draw upon me.' "'Why, truly,' replied Monte Cristo, determined not to lose an inch of the ground he had gained, "'my reason for desiring an unlimited credit was precisely because I did not know how much money I might need.' The banker thought the time had come for him to take the upper hand, so, throwing himself back in his armchair, he said with an arrogant and purse-proud air, "'Let me beg of you not to hesitate in naming your wishes. You will then be convinced that the resources of the house of Danglars, however limited, are still equal to meeting the largest demands, and were you even to require a million?' "'I beg your pardon,' interposed Monte Cristo. "'I said a million,' replied Danglars, with the confidence of ignorance. "'But could I do with a million?' retorted the Count. "'My dear sir, if a trifle like that would suffice me, I should never have given myself the trouble of opening an account. A million? Excuse my smiling when you speak of a sum I am in the habit of carrying in my pocket-book or dressing-case.' And with these words... Monte Cristo took from his pocket a small case containing his visiting cards, and drew forth two orders on the treasury for five hundred thousand francs each, payable at sight to the bearer. A man like Danglars was wholly inaccessible to any gentler method of correction. The effect of the present revelation was stunning. He trembled, and was on the verge of apoplexy. The pupils of his eyes, as he gazed at Monte Cristo, dilated horribly. "'Come, come,' said Monte Cristo. "'Confess honestly that you have not perfect confidence in Thompson and French. "'I understand, and foreseeing that such might be the case, "'I took, in spite of my ignorance of affairs, certain precautions. "'See, here are two similar letters to that you have yourself received, "'one from the house of Astein and Eskel of Vienna, "'and Baron Rothschild, the other drawn by Baring of London upon Monsieur Lafitte.' now sir you have but to say the word and i will spare you all uneasiness by presenting my letter of credit to one or other of these two firms the blow had struck home and danglars was entirely vanquished with a trembling hand he took the two letters from the count who held them carelessly between finger and thumb and proceeded to scrutinize the signatures with a minuteness that the count might have regarded as insulting had it not suited his present purpose to mislead the banker. "'Oh, sir,' said Danglars, after he had convinced himself of the authenticity of the documents he beheld, and rising as if to salute the power of gold personified in the man before him, three letters of unlimited credit. I can be no longer mistrustful, but you must pardon me, my dear Count, for confessing to some degree of astonishment.' "'Nay,' answered Monte Cristo with the most gentlemanly air. 
"'Tis not for such trifling sums as these "'that your banking-house is to be accommoded. "'Then you can let me have some money, can you not?' "'Whatever you say, my dear Count, I am at your orders.' "'Why,' replied Monte Cristo, "'since we mutually understand each other, "'for such I presume is the case,' Donglaire bowed assentingly, "'you are quite sure that not a lurking doubt or suspicion lingers in your mind.' "'Oh, my dear Count,' exclaimed Danglars, "'I never for an instant entertained such a feeling toward you. "'No, you merely wished to be convinced, nothing more. "'But now that we have come to so clear an understanding, "'and that all distrust and suspicion are laid at rest, "'we may as well fix a sum as the probable expenditure of the first year. "'Suppose we say six million to—' "'Six million?' gasped Danglars. "'So be it.' "'Then if I should require more,' continued Monte Cristo in a careless manner, "'why, of course, I should draw upon you, "'but my present intention is not to remain in France more than a year, "'and during that period I scarcely think I shall exceed the sum I mentioned. "'However, we shall see. "'Be kind enough, then, to send me five hundred thousand francs to-morrow. "'I shall be at home till midday, or if not I will leave a receipt with my steward.' "'The money you desire shall be at your house by ten o'clock tomorrow morning, my dear Count,' replied Danglars. "'How would you like to have it, in gold, silver, or notes?' "'Half in gold, and the other half in banknotes, if you please,' said the Count, rising from his seat. "'I must confess to you, Count,' said Danglars, "'that I have hitherto imagined myself acquainted with the degree of all the great fortunes of Europe,' and still well such as yours has been wholly unknown to me may i presume to ask whether you have long possessed it it has been in the family a very long while returned monte cristo a sort of treasure expressly forbidden to be touched for a certain period of years during which the accumulated interest has doubled the capital the period appointed by the testator for the disposal of these riches occurred only a short time ago and they have only been employed by me within the last few years your ignorance on the subject therefore is easily accounted for however you will be better informed as to me and my possessions ere long and the count while pronouncing these latter words accompanied them with one of those ghastly smiles that used to strike terror into poor france d'epinay with your taste and means of gratifying them continued Danglars, you will exhibit a splendor that must effectually put us poor miserable millionaire quite in the shade if i mistake you not an admirer of paintings at least i judged you so from the attention you appeared to be bestowing on mine when i entered the room if you will permit me i shall be happy to show you my picture gallery composed entirely of works by the ancient masters warranted as such not a modern picture among them i cannot endure the modern school of painting you are perfectly right in objecting to them for this one great fault that they have not yet had time to become old or will you allow me to show you several fine statues by thorvaldsen bortoloni and canova all foreign artists for as you may perceive I think but very indifferently of our French sculptors. 
you have a right to be unjust to them monsieur they are your compatriots but all this may come later when we shall be better known to each other for the present i will confine myself if perfectly agreeable to you to introducing you to the baroness d'anglars excuse my impatience my dear count but a client like you is almost like a member of the family monte cristo bowed in sign that he accepted the proffered honour danglars rang and was answered by a servant in a showy livery is the baroness at home inquired danglars yes my lord answered the man and alone no my lord madame has visitors have you any objection to meet any persons who may be with madame or do you desire to preserve a strict incognito no indeed replied monte cristo with a smile i do not arrogate to myself the right of so doing and who is with madame monsieur d'aubray inquired danglars with an air of indulgence and good nature that made monte cristo smile acquainted as he was with the secrets of the banker's domestic life yes my lord replied the miss-servant monsieur d'aubray is with madame danglars nodded his head then turning to monte cristo said a monsieur lucien d'aubray is an old friend of mine and private secretary to the minister of the interior as for my wife i must tell you she lowered herself by marrying me for she belongs to one of the most ancient families in france her maiden name was de servier and her first husband was colonel the marquis of nargonne i have not the honour of knowing madame d'anglars but i have already met monsieur lucien dubray ah indeed said danglars and where was that at the house of monsieur de morcerf aha you are acquainted with the young viscount are you we were together a good deal during the carnival at rome true true cried danglars let me see have i not heard talk of some strange adventure with bandits or thieves hidden ruins and of his having had a miraculous escape i forget how but i know he used to amuse my wife and daughter by telling them about it after his return from italy her ladyship is waiting to receive you gentlemen said the servant who had gone to inquire the pleasure of his mistress with your permission said danglars bowing i will precede you to show you the way by all means replied monte cristo i follow you End of chapter 46。What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to eleven grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition, ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.